That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. We're going to talk a lot of football on today's show. Washington State will be with us this hour. Three-time Super Bowl champion Mike Walters. San Francisco 49ers linebacker will be with us. J.J. Burden, former, former Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver, will be with us in hour three. We'll get it all over the Super Bowl. But before we get to that, can we talk for a second about the outlandish remarks or maybe the strategic remarks by the mayor of Las Vegas. We've been talking for a few days about MLB to PDX. They've been talking now for a year and a half, two years about MLB to Las Vegas. And the A's seemingly headed to Las Vegas and now, now maybe not. Maybe headed back to Oakland. Hell, maybe headed to Portland in a three-city trade. Mayor Carolyn G. Goodman, the mayor of Las Vegas, who, by the way, is kind of a mover and a shaker. I'll be honest with you. Like, you know, I reached out earlier this week to Mayor Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland, and his uh, chief of staff, Bobby Lee, who I think is an important player in the MLB to PDX conversation. Like Bobby Lee, behind the scenes, I think is a really interesting and important player that people don't know about. And as part of my job in hosting this radio show and writing a column is to shine sunshine in some of the uh, dark places and, and sort of put light in and educate and sometimes uh, have an opinion. And But Bobby Lee plays a really interesting role. So I asked... I asked the mayor's office in Portland, uh, Mayor Ted Wheeler uh, made a request. Mayor, you know, the mayor's chief of staff, Bobby Lee, made a request. Would love to have Bobby Lee or Ted Wheeler, the mayor Wheeler, on the show to kind of talk about their role in the potential of Major League Baseball coming to the Portland region, if not at Lloyd Center, which is which was their preferred spot that really – solved a problem for the mayor's office and you know it could have been part of a solution over in Lloyd Center to maybe pivoting out to Redtail in a much larger property that is actually available for sale. The Lloyd Center property is not for sale and the lease is on that building uh, five to ten years out locked up and so I think it becomes a really difficult challenge to try to make Lloyd Center happen even though that you know that's I you know yeah in a perfect world could you pull it off would it would it be great yes but it doesn't just seem it doesn't seem realistic. Well, I reached out to the mayor's office, reached out to Bobby Lee, the chief of staff, and I haven't heard back from either one of them. It's just been crickets. Crickets from City Hall in Portland. 
And in the meantime, I reached out to the mayor's office in the city of Beaverton, got a response immediately. And I reached out to the mayor of Las Vegas, Carolyn Goodman, got a response like almost as if I, I had just sent it, like bang, right back, her chief of staff going, Mayor Goodman would love to be on your show, would love to talk about what's going on in Vegas. There's just such a difference in sort of the style, the leadership style, the management style, who's proactive, who's not, you know. And I just find I find Mayor Goodman in Vegas to be a really interesting character in this whole Major League Baseball quest uh, as it pertains to the A's, as it pertains to possible expansion. Feels to me like the mayor in Vegas is trying to do what the mayor in Portland was originally aiming to do. And Carolyn Goodman would like very much if the Oakland A's would build their stadium down on Fremont Street. Now, Stephen, you've been to Vegas. You know Fremont Street in Vegas. The Union Plaza Hotel, it's old Vegas. Can you give our listeners maybe a little bit of flavor of what Fremont Street looks like on a Tuesday night? It's um, it's definitely... It, say it. Just say it. I mean, it's the cheaper part of town. That's for sure. It's a little sketchier. Um, there's going to be a little more uh, people standing there looking like they're just drinking and ready to rob you, I feel like. Like, I, I, it's scary. <laughs> just drinking and ready to rob you. Yeah, yes. it, it's yeah. scarier over there. Like, it just, The shadows are moving. Yeah, it just is. It's just, it's just not a better part of town. Like, I know that sometimes Vegas, the strip now has been a little overpriced. But if you go to Fremont Street, you're definitely trying to save a buck, which I understand. I get that. But it's also you get what you're paying for, and it's a lot cheaper over there. Give me an idea because, you know, if you are, um, you know, if you're Major League Baseball and you're the A's, let me just say you're the Oakland A's, would you prefer to be on Fremont Street or prefer to be on the Strip? Got to be the Strip, right? I, I just think that's the ideal place to be. That's where all the other facilities are. You look at Allegiant Stadium right off the Strip. You look at um, – T-Mobile Stadium, and I believe that's what it's called with the Golden Knights right off the strip. Yep. They play the college, you know, Pac-12 tournament right off the strip. Like you got to be with all the other ones. I feel like if you are being, it's I feel like you're relegated if you're going to Fremont Street. You're going to Old Vegas. Like you're part of the old town. You want to be part of the new stuff. You want to be part of the big building. So you got to be on the strip if you're going down to Vegas. Not as cool to be in downtown Old Vegas on Fremont Street as it is to be on the strip, and it's why. You know, the you know you could argue Allegiant Stadium isn't technically on the strip, but it's right across the freeway. It's on that side of town. It's not downtown. And Mayor Goodman in Las Vegas clearly wants to do what Mayor Wheeler in Portland originally aimed to do with the baseball and the Diamond Project. Is you know she's trying to solve one of her problems. Is you know the pro it's a Fremont Street's a problem. And I found it really interesting as she did an interview, uh, in a podcast interview with another media entity, and she talked about the downtown historic Las Vegas location. And I'm going, wait a minute, she means Fremont Street? Now, look, I've been down there. Anna and I, when we go to Vegas, we stay on the Strip, okay? And, like, Stephen, you, you're, you're, like, you're loyal to the Cosmo, right? Loyal. Cosmopolitan. Yeah, loyal to the Cosmo. That's where my wife gets all her rewards points. That's, that's the only place we can stay because, uh, you know, she, she's a high roller there. That's your place, okay? And, and I like that place, and I like most of the places that are on the Strip. But, you know, there's pluses and minuses, location, whatever, to each of them. But I, I remember the last time we were in Vegas, Anna and I wanted to play this horse racing game that she really enjoys. 
And we found out, we looked online, there's a whole website, there's this little mechanical horse racing game, and I was like, who's going to have this game? We found out that the horse racing game happened to be at one of the uh, one of the uh, hotels that was down on Fremont Street. And so we took a Uber down to Fremont Street, we got out of the Uber, we walked into this place, and I immediately looked at her and I was like, we're just going to play this game and get out of here. And it was like the ceilings were low, it was smoky. It was just uh it was a crowd that, you know, you're, you know, you're it wasn't the the strip crowd. It, you know, and and there's a certain feel down on Fremont Street that isn't the same. And so, and I don't mean to sound like a snob, but, you know, if if you were visiting Vegas and you asked me where to stay, I'm not going to tell you to stay downtown Vegas. And, but yeah, Mayor Goodman in Vegas is basically telling the A's to get away from the Tropicana property that they want to build on. And she wants them to go downtown. Now, listen to this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you three clips from Mayor Goodman in Vegas. And we're getting her on the show. She's coming on the show anyway. We're going to talk about NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball. It, and the one thing I appreciate about her is how accessible she is, how out in the open she is. And, like, she is absolutely hammering the drum for her city in a way that is really kind of inspiring for the businesses in that city. And then, you know, she's also kind of hammering the drum for, for Oakland and saying, hey, look, man, it, you, you know, you know I, if I'm Oakland, I'd want to keep this team. But listen to her, and I want you to frame this whole conversation today around the idea that, you know, the city of Portland has got a parcel of land that the Diamond Project would like to buy out in Beaverton. They're in negotiations for it. There have been appraisals that have been done on it. And, you know, Mayor Goodman's in Vegas. She would prefer the A's build on Fremont Street, build their ballpark there, not on the Strip where she sees congestion as a problem. Everybody wants to be on the Strip as a problem. She liked to serve, like, you know, her city by putting the Oakland A's in, in downtown historic Las Vegas. She doesn't say Fremont Street. I think it's interesting, uh, interesting framing by the mayor of Las Vegas. Listen to Carolyn Goodman here. If you want something badly enough, you find a way to get it done. Um, Certainly here, I think those who've been involved with the conversations and the planning, um, and as I said, Dave Cabal and his team have uh, many, 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 many meetings, uh, picked on different sites. This one's definite. Nope, they don't like it anymore. This one's the one. Nope, not that one. And that's the reason I keep thinking, there's something wrong here um, and maybe just waiting it out. And um, it's not a vote because the people, I'm not sure the funds are there. So how do you find and make the funds happen? I just know that Mr. Fisher, um, a long time um, successful family, um, in my opinion, um, needs to listen to the people that are up there. It's their team. It's their team. Listen to the people in Vegas. Notice how she's saying there's something wrong here if we can't agree on it. It's just so politically deft by her to put it back on the A's. And also to point out that John Fisher's family, you know, he's from the Gap Empire, the Gap department stores, um, you know, that his family is successful. Basically, she's saying he's got the money. Why is he looking to Vegas to solve his problem? Keep in mind, she wants him downtown on Fremont Street. 
he wants to be on the strip at that prop, Tropicana property, which is, I think, way too small to house a ballpark anyway. But here is her second comment about the A's ballpark location preference, and she says it just doesn't make sense. We had entertained them down here. We have a very large complex, probably about 60 acres. We probably could cobble together more land so they could possibly have 100 acres. Um, And it's in the historic old part of town, which is where all major interstate highways come together. We have seven access points to it. It is in an opportunity zone. There are all these benefits. And so when they said no, I thought, hmm, this doesn't make sense. Here's a great site. They can get a great price on it because it's owned by the city. We went out to reach for them. And yet, no, they're going to go out, want to get closer to the strip with all the congestion and everything. And I thought, this does not make sense. And so why is it happening? And then I thought, well, because they really want to stay in Oakland. They want to be on the water. They have that magnificent um, dream, and yet they can't get it on. There it is. She's basically saying Fremont Street without saying Fremont Street. Notice she talks about the historic district in Vegas. And, you know, look, it's a mayor's job to advocate for her city. What I like about what Mayor Goodman is doing in Vegas versus maybe the mayor in Portland is, you know, she's getting out. She's talking. We know how she feels. And uh, and right now, I think, you know, I would love to hear from Mayor Wheeler in Portland. I'd love to hear from his chief of staff, Bobby Lee, you know, you know, and, and look, I'll write about this in either way. But I would love to, like, you know, sort of get their mindset. Where do they stand on these issues? Where do they stand on a ballpark that would sit, uh, you know, on the edge of Portland in the city of Beaverton and in Washington County and uh, would would that benefit the region to see like Atlanta? Atlanta has now the ballpark in Cobb County that, you know, I know when I was in Atlanta, I stayed in downtown Atlanta. I ate in restaurants in downtown Atlanta. I walked around downtown Atlanta. I saw a lot of Duck fans who were in downtown Atlanta for the football game that was happening at Mercedes Benz, uh, you know, the uh, the, uh, the Superdome and or the arena. And uh, then, uh, you know, we took a drive out to see like you know where midtown and and let's go see uh let's see what the ballpark looks like that the Braves play at and and I thought gosh this is really awesome because it sort of creates um you know a bridge to the suburbs from downtown Atlanta and you know would that benefit Portland I'm sure it would would it benefit the state of Oregon I'm sure it would uh versus maybe uh not having baseball but Mayor Goodman I think does a really nice job of advocating for her city even though she's not willing to give the A's what they want, which is the ballpark on the strip, um, you know, she's kind of putting some political pressure on John Fisher and the A's. Not kind of. She is by by basically saying, eh, maybe they should just stay in Oakland. I uh, personally, and having lived here, even though I grew up in New York City, I have, and I'm so young, uh, I've lived in this town this year, 60 years. And so know the town like the back of my hand. I personally think they've got to figure out a way to stay in Oakland to make their dream come true. There you go. Stay in Oakland. Make your dream come true. She knows what she's doing. She's trying to push the A's into a position where they go, gosh, we're not going to be on the strip. We're not going to get our preferred location. 
they have to go downtown or they have to go somewhere else. Now, could they end up in Portland? It's possible. I know that John Fisher, the owner of the A's, had talked about wanting a ballpark on the water. Is this a win-win where Mayor Wheeler and his chief of staff, Bobby Lee, could get what they want, which is a ballpark that could be part of downtown Portland? Uh, is this uh, is this uh, Vegas just trying to you know, push for an expansion team rather than the mess that, that is the A's? Possibly. Who knows? But I just think it's interesting, given all that we know, about, you know, Major League Baseball and expansion to kind of watch the sideshow that is Las Vegas and the A's. And I kind of think this, too. Like, if the A's were interested in ever coming to the Portland region, I I just think you'd rather have an expansion team than deal with John Fisher and the mess that is the A's. It doesn't sound like Carolyn Goodman, who gets stuff done, gets the NFL to Vegas, gets the NBA to Vegas, you know, has Vegas humming. Um, and you see all of the activity. F1 racing was a nightmare for Vegas. She got it done. What I appreciated about her is even in the aftermath of it, she said, ah, it didn't really work. It was too congested. It closed off too many of our city streets. We're going to have to do better with that moving forward. She's just like a total advocate for her city. And there's a reason why, you know, they don't just talk about things, getting big things done. In Las Vegas, they actually like take a shovel out and they start digging as they're talking. And I think Portland and I think our region, Beaverton, Tigard, you know, I think we could learn a lot from the way that Las Vegas sort of chases big ideas and doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't shy away from from those types of things. Now, I I am I did put a, in an interview request as I mentioned for the mayor of Beaverton. I would like to talk with the mayor of Beaverton, Mayor Beatty. Lacey Beatty is the mayor of Beaverton. She's a really interesting story as uh, she's worked in public health and she's uh, became the youngest ever elected official, first woman to be mayor in Beaverton's history. And uh, her husband is a major in the United States Army um, and uh, a full-time uh, officer in the National Guard. And she's just a really interesting story. I'd love to get her on the show as well. I've made that request, but I think it's, Really important here, and I think it has to happen this week. You know, you got a lot of noise coming from Portland and the city hall. You know, saying, "Hey, we support baseball." Uh, you got the Diamond Project saying, "We'd like to put a stadium out." Uh, you know, where the Red Tail Golf Course is, buy that piece of property. Great, make those things happen. But what I haven't heard, and what I need to hear, I need to hear something from the city of Beaverton and Mayor Beatty. I would like to see her come out. And one way or the other, hey, I really am enthusiastically supporting baseball. The Red Tail Project is something I'm super interested in. We uh, owe it to our city and to the vision of our city to explore this uh, pedal to the metal um, something. Or if she's not, say say that you're not. But, um, you know, I know enough with her military background, she served in the Iraq War, that she isn't afraid uh, you know, to stick her nose into um, into a, a tough situation and kind of, you know, ignore the vocal minority and, and you know, try to do what's best for her city. So I, I think it'll be really interesting to see if she comes out in the next few days. I think I think this week, given the, all the news, would be ideal and make some kind of public statement. All right, Jake Dickert is coming up. Washington State football coach will be with us. We'll talk about recruiting. We'll talk about burnout with college coaches getting out of the game. We'll talk about the fact that he retained most of his roster 
when we all thought Washington State would get fleeced in the transfer portal. Jake Dickert is next. Washington State coach Jake Dickert had a tweet the other day that caught my eye. He was tweeting about all the different youth sports events that he had to go to and intermixing the things he had to do for his work. He's joining us now. Uh, give us an idea of what that's like, even though most of us, a lot of us know it. <laughs> well, I appreciate you having me on, John. I think, first of all, you know, I, I like to call it a little bit. It's dad season, too. Right. You know, we get a lot of coach season in this line of profession and I got three kids. My daughter's 12 and the two boys are nine and seven. And, you know, I got volleyball and choir with my daughter and I got basketball and baseball rolling now. So it's just kind of a appreciation deal. I've always been a small town guy. And just to understand, you know, Pullman and Washington State, it allows, you know, me to be both. And I think uh, it's just one of those appreciation tweets that shows that I really value that. And you can't put a monetary value on those type of things. To be able to go do those things while we're still recruiting and hosting guys is is really important to me and the the work-life balance that seems to be harder and harder as as we kind of keep going through this coaching world. My three daughters, we got a volleyball player and we have a soccer player. And I got to tell you, I I miss being in the gyms. I enjoyed kind yeah. of being there and being a fan and getting to be a fan. I never get to be a fan. It was really cool for me. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where I had to remind my wife, too, the other day because she obviously shoulders the weight of the Dicker taxi service, right? Uh, right. But I just reminded her someday – you know, there won't be a practice to go to, right, as they keep going. So just a reminder to enjoy these moments. And I try to do the same thing, John. When I'm there, I'm dad. I'm just excited to be around. I take off the coaching hat. And trust me, my wife yells way more at the games than I do. So as long as they're playing hard and having fun, I think we're having a great experience. What did you play as a kid? What do you remember playing? So same thing, small town kid, and I got to do football, basketball, baseball. My dad's biggest love and passion was baseball, and he always wanted us to do that. My brother, older brother, did that kind of. He gravitated there and played at a small town college, and I kind of gravitated more towards football. Always it was just fun to me, and got getting a chance to play offense, play defense, do a bunch of different things. And you know, when you're a small town kid, the town you know, really values the high school sports. And, you know, as I graduated a class of 27 kids, so there was nine senior boys, right? The, the teams, you had to keep playing just so we had teams. So I enjoyed every phase of it, not specializing, and had a great kind of well-rounded experience. That's interesting. So there's only 27 uh, kids. Like, you, they, did you have classmates who say, hey, we need you to come out for basketball? We need you to come out for cross-country or whatever it was? Absolutely. I mean, it was like recruiting the hallways 101. There was coaches in there being like, hey, you're a big kid. You got to get out. And it was more of a basketball school at that time when I got there. Uh, so the football program was a little bit down. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, like I said, you never came off the field. You know, I think I was punter, uh, ran down on kickoff. I played quarterback, safety. I mean, it's just one of those things where get out there. You had a lot of fun. Wasn't always successful uh, in a bunch of different realms, but uh just love the process of doing that, and you know I think it's kind of shaped me into who I am today. Jake Dickert with us, Washington State football coach. Um, everyone expected at the end of the season the portal opened, and I think a lot of people expected Oregon State, Washington State would get hit. They're a different case, I think, with the coach leaving and making a transition, but you've managed to maintain and hold on to and retain a bunch of your roster, and you know I'm curious kind of what went into that and – and, uh, you know, were you concerned as that portal date approached? 
Well, I think in today's world, I think everyone has a little bit of concern, especially guys that are, you know, tremendously successful. You know, and it's part of today's world that you got to navigate. But the credit I really give to is the players, right? I think consistency still does matter, and I think that's maybe what we proved this year. All 10 full-time assistant coaches are still here. Uh, obviously, head coach is still here. And then the players just buy into what we're doing. And now going into year three, you know, I just think everything's established. Your culture's established. Your expectations are established. And, guys, hopefully we create an environment that they want to be a part of. And hopefully that's what it says more than anything. I told our coaching staff, do not take this lightly. They're sending us a big message that we're doing things right. We not always get the results maybe we wanted to last season, and there's a lot to talk about in that direction. But off the field stuff and the relationship pieces and the environment that we're creating for our players, obviously we're doing something right because they stay, they want to stay and be a part of it. So, like I said, I, I don't take that lightly. I think it's a huge accomplishment. There's a lot of work, and it doesn't just happen at the end of a season. It is a body of work through a long period of time to show consistency and when a player is comfortable, that's when they're going to be allowed to be the, their best self, and I think that's the environment that we try to create. Do you ever get a, you know, is there a, uh, I guess, I don't want to say spider senses or tingling, but what are the markers when you have to worry about a kid? You know, I know basketball coaches have said, you know, anytime money gets involved, it's about money. Do you have those conversations where is there something a kid might bring to you where you know, hey, we might be in a little trouble here, or how does that unfold kid by kid? Try to really, John, be really open about it, just saying, hey, let's be open to talking about things. And every kid's situation is different. You know, I tell our players I try to be an individual contractor for you and your success. And all that means is they got 120 guys. But I try not to treat any of them the same because they're all different, different backgrounds, motivated differently, different goals, dreams, and aspirations. And the more you treat them individually, the more they're willing to come in and, and let's talk about a variety of different things. And that could be from family to school to relationships to obviously opportunities now that college athletics have created. So try to make sure they understand that and talk openly about it, understand the challenges and the realities that they face. Uh, because, you know, we can talk about tampering or whatever, but at the end of the day, it's just part of it now a little bit. And I think the more you can be proactive instead of reactive is a positive thing. But also, I mean, you can see some, we had some conversations with some guys like, hey, you know, you've been, you haven't been as engaged in the team. You know, your energy's been down. You know, talk to me, what's happening? And, uh, you know, some of those guys, you know, say they're leaving, and other guys, we, we correct it and find solutions and, and keep on going. The, um, you know, I looked at the signing day in December, 23 high school signees, I think, on that signing day. You took a definite approach and strategy there. What's the strategy about? Well, I just think at the end of the day, we will always be a developmental program here at Washington State. And I'm just really proud now. We've talked about year three, and we're finally getting to that and getting our roster stable. And the only way to do that is through high school recruiting, especially in the Pacific Northwest. So you can talk about all the outside noise and why that's valuable to do that. But at the end of the day, if we want to develop the right time of, time of players, take a bunch of three-star, two-stars and invest in them and then reap those rewards, you know, as sophomores, juniors, seniors, you got to invest in local high school players and be willing to go through the lumps and the highs and lows of developing players within your program. 
and I've said this maybe even on your show, John, we want to put people in the slow cooker. We live in a microwave society. They want instant access, instant success, uh, instant opportunity. Well, life doesn't work that way. You got to put in the time. You got to develop. We got to find specific traits that we love, and then we're willing to develop the deficiencies, right? So there's a specific plan, a specific idea of how we want to utilize every person within our program, and that's utilizing walk-ons all the way to our all-conference players and creating an individual plan for their success. Because when players are individually their best, that's how we become the best collective team. And it starts with recruiting high school players that have buy-in and finding the right guy, not the best guy, meaning better be blue-collar, better love the game, better be in it for the right reasons, because that's what Washington State is. And I think we got to try to know who we are better than everybody else around us. And there's a unique challenge to that. There's a, you got to dive deeper, and you got to get off just surface-level conversations and really find out about people. And that's why we continue to invest in the high school athlete and kind of infiltrate our roster of you know some needs through the transfer portal. I talked to a lot of parents who have high school seniors, and they were concerned as the uh, signing day approached because there were fewer scholarships available with a lot of the schools going full throttle on transfers and trying to get older and did you see better players available to you? Did you did you see sort of that that bottleneck of hey, there's a there's a pool of talent here at the high school level that is that is rich and deep. Yeah, I think you see a lot of programs with a variety of different strategies. I know one of ours, and maybe it's a little bit different. Is I still love senior tape evaluation. I think people maybe aren't as patient, but man, that junior to senior year jump is still there and i learned that from craig bull at wyoming and north dakota state that man let's really evaluate some of these senior tape and really get it right instead of being in a hurry to fill a class and yes some of the best juniors are also the best seniors i get that but there is still a lot of development to be had so to be patient throughout the process even within the season which causes you know sometimes a lot of stress because coaches are coaches and we got a lot of things to do but still be in development, you know, just along that process and be detailed to going out and finding those guys as well. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I am concerned, John, for the high school athletes. Uh, we saw, you know, we have seven mid-years en- enrollees here. I think that's going to become more prevalent to add value to the high school athlete. I think they're in talks of looking at hopefully moving the signing day up. I think that will help the high school athlete. Uh, so, I think there's a bunch of things that are in play, and as we continue to work through and figure out the college calendar, I, I think uh, you know we got to make sure we still have an eye on what's best for you know the high school athlete coming out. The Cougar Collective, you know, I think you've talked before about the support that you need and you know what you need to retain players. How, did did the fan base respond to that? Did you see a spike in in more involvement from the Cougar Collective? Yeah, they did, and I think. My job sometimes is just to speak the truth. And we got tons of passion to be a Coug and want to be a part of it. But there is a real harsh reality of what it takes now. And as the game evolves, I think, you know, players and programs and fan bases and, you know, have to continue to evolve with it. And, you know, there, there's a lot of ways you could go on the, the NIL piece of it. But at the end of the day, it just needed to get out there that you know, the realities of where we're at. And once again, all we got, all we need is kind of our mantra here. And it's not looking 
you know, outside the fan base or outside our building. Like, what can we do? What is our Coug Nation best? And that was the challenge. And I think it'll always be the challenge as we continue to navigate what's next. Okay, My biggest point is I want to put all of our energy into not fighting the past but building the future. And I think that's the mentality that we're taking. And there's only one way to look. It's out the, it's out the windshield, and let's keep attacking. The uh, you know we've watched some coaches you know David Shaw comes to mind Chris Peterson maybe and uh, Nick Saban certainly who have uh, and some other guys that have left college to go to the NFL the idea being that this is not the same job that it was years ago what you know what's your take on coaches who are either opting out and saying I've had enough or or maybe going to the NFL where at least there's a collective bargaining agreement well I think there's a lot of things that are challenging facing our game today and and john that could be a long conversation of different things but i think every individual is different you know i've only been sitting in this chair now being a head coach for a certain period of time Uh, but i think the the workload on coaches is stacking up and it's now obviously it always was 365 but i think it's really 365 as far as the recruitment the retainment uh, the fundraising you have to do both in the facility and NIL side. I mean, I think there's a lot of different things that people, one thing I miss, John, is coaching ball sometimes, <laughs> right? And I understand the hats that we have to wear as a head coach and a mentor and a lot of things that we need to do for still player development and all those different type of things. One thing I think you'll see more of is guys probably getting out earlier, and that isn't just going to the NFL, but you know, the Coach Sabins of the world and Coach Paternos and people that work way into, you know, I know this, I'm I'm 40, John, and I can see myself doing this for another 10 years and probably taking a break because it is investing everything of every ounce of what you got into trying to be successful. And I think that's what our players deserve and our program deserves. But there's also only so long that you can do that. And I talk a lot about the health of our staff and the recovery of our staff because some of those things are very important as well. So there's a lot of things at play, and I believe that's a really individual decision as far as how everyone perceives the new college landscape. I also, you know, I'm left thinking about something you've talked about a lot, and it's, you know, we all get into sports as kids uh, for the love of the game or the joy or the fun we're having or maybe being around a bunch of other healthy kids that are positive influences and then, at some point, it feels like in today's world it becomes transactional. What's what do you what do you tell your guys on that front? Well, I think the biggest thing, and I've been on this especially the last couple of years. You know, now being at the Power Five for a you know a certain amount of time, and then obviously being the head coach now. To me, there's two buckets. There's people that really play football for the love and the passion and the camaraderie and the intrinsic values that you get from the game and the life lessons you get from it. That's in the love bucket, right? And then there's this other bucket that's transactional. And to your point, you know, I tell people, I think sometimes it's an adult problem, right? When the kid is 10, 12 years old or 15, we're telling them you're just going to go play in the NFL or you have to get a scholarship or, you know, there's only this means to an end. Uh, depending on where you're putting all your all your eggs, what buckets you want to put it into, that's the type of experience you will get. But the transactional bucket to me is a weight on young people. It is. Uh, I tell them when they sit down in the one-on-ones, don't worry about playing in the NFL. Let's worry about getting you on the field in the Pac-12. Then we'll have the appropriate conversations at the right time. 
Because what the transactional deal does is it takes away the joy. I tell our guys all the time, I never say, let's go work football. Okay, I say, let's go play football, right? And that's where you got to understand the love and the passion and the roots of what makes this game the best in the world. So don't forget that. And do I think there should be intersection of those two at some point? Potentially. But at the end of the day, we're still don't lose why this game is so special and just trying to get that in their mind, you know, to let them really understand you have to control your environment. And I think that is one of the biggest things we try to teach our guys. You know, there's a lot of people reaching out and saying, hey, there's better things over here, or they're impatient in certain avenues, and they don't let them go through a developmental process. So there's a lot of things that are happening in a young person's world today that I think it is our job to equip them and educate them uh, so they can make informed decisions. Love that. Uh, Jake Dickert with us, uh, Washington State coach. Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, you're a defensive guy. Um, what do you break this? Handicap the game for us. Break it down for us. What do you see, Chiefs Niners? Well, I'm disappointed my Packers didn't have that opportunity to upset the Niners. But <laughs> the Niners just remind you of that good old fashioned team that finds a way. Uh, and I just I don't know how you go against the Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs and their experience and they've been there. I just think there is a winning attitude and culture that they have there that no matter what situation and circumstances they have, they're going to find a way. So I'm going to go 27-24 Chiefs. Boo. Come on. I'm a Niners fan. (laughs) But what does it say? Let me bear with me here. The Niners, I usually believe that if you don't play well in the playoffs, you lose. Are they that good that they can play like a – C plus C minus game, and you know, play a half a game against the Lions and still win. Or yeah. what happened there? I would say this: it'll always catch up to you. And if you play C plus against the Chiefs, they're going to beat you. Yeah. The Packers, we're still rebuilding, and I say we. I'm a, I'm a, a paper stockholder of the Packers. <laughs> uh, Detroit Lions, they haven't been there as much, and they and they didn't close. You're going to have to close out the Chiefs, and uh, I think they'll bring their A game. I just I just think it'll be one heck of a game. So it's Jake Dickert, owner, Green Bay Packers, <laughs> from now on. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah, it's, it's quite the scheme. They allow you to pay 100 bucks just to get a piece of paper so they can build new facilities. It's incredible. <laughs> well, and you're the onto something there. It. It's, an awesome, it's an awesome scheme. Cougar Collective. Come on, get, it, get with it. Own a part <laughs> of the right. stadium. Um, That's right. All right, Coach, thank you for giving us your time. I uh, wish you the best. We'll check in with you again. Uh, you know, nice job on the – on the recruiting class and the retention, feels like you got some momentum as you head into the off season here in the in the summer. Yeah, a lot of excitement. We're excited to get back to the spring ball here pretty soon, and I appreciate it, John. Go Cougs! Love that owner of the Green Bay Packers, one of our former engineers right here at the radio station, is also an owner of the Packers. I wonder if Jake Dickert will be in the owner's box next season for the Packers. In all seriousness, he's got an angle. He has a definite recruiting strategy. Really, really impressed that Washington State was able to hold together the roster with the retention that they did. Um, it kind of gives you hope if you're Oregon State looking over and going, look, you know, Jonathan Smith leaving obviously I think hurt Oregon State far more than Washington State. But it'll be interesting to see next season as these two programs move on and move towards uh, competing next season, Mountain West Conference schedules, six, seven games and then into the great unknown as they try to figure out what's going to happen in the landscape of college sports. All right, you got the bald-faced truth statewide right here on the BFT Radio Network. we got a great show for you today. Mike Walter.
former 49ers linebacker, coming up top of the hour. J.J. Burden, former Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver, in hour three. Leave it here. I like to keep politics out of this show. I don't like to talk politics. You're not coming here to get politics or advice on your tax return. Uh, You're coming here because uh, you probably enjoy listening to the show or you're a sports fan or uh, maybe uh, I'm just here to keep you company on your drive or your run or in the gym or whatever it may be. Um, I uh, appreciate that you're here, but uh, I'm not going to bring politics into this, but I am going to give equal time on today's show to the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. I am going to play impartial. Uh, We will have former 49er, three-time Super Bowl champion Mike Walter on the show at 4 o'clock, 11 minutes from now. Make an appointment. If you know a Niner fan who would appreciate hearing Mike Walter, former Oregon Duck, the pride of Sheldon High School, he'll be on the show. If you want to uh, hear that interview, stick around and text a friend right now. Not if you're driving, but text a friend. Let them know, hey, tune in. 7.50 7.50 the game in Portland, Fox Sports Eugene and Eugene, 9.60 a.m. in Klamath Falls, 14.90 a.m. in Roseburg, um, you know, where, wherever you may be. Uh, Mike Walter coming up, 4 o'clock. J.J. Burden, former Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver, will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. I texted J.J. today, and I said, hey, just a reminder, we're going to be calling you around 5.20. J.J. Uh, hit me back with Go Chiefs. Now, I said to J.J., equal time. Like Mike Walter, J.J. Burden, that's how we're going to do it. Uh, Later this week, we will be, uh, we've got a number of big guests coming down the pipeline. Uh, SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey, likely, later this week. Um, He and I have been exchanging messages, trying to work out a time for him. I'd love to get him on the show to talk about what's going on in college athletics. Of course, it's an important time. Uh, Just to summarize a little bit of news, we've got some uh, NFL News today with uh, the Chiefs and the 49ers talking to media. Andy Reid talking about his possible retirement, says it's not today. (laughs) We'll hear a bunch of that sound coming up. We'll break it down, tell you what it means. Uh, Also, uh, um, Jim Harbaugh doing his introductory news conference with the Bolts, with the Superchargers down in Los Angeles. Uh, Jim Harbaugh to the Chargers is interesting. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that with Mike Walter and with J.J. Burden because they know as a player how important it is continuity to have the same head coach. And I, I just find it insane, almost insane, that Justin Herbert went through three college coaches in his time at Oregon and now has his third full-time head coach in the NFL. Six coaches since 2016. Think about that, how ridiculous that is for Justin Herbert trying to get any kind of continuity, trying to get any kind of momentum. Really kind of silly, if you think about it. But I'll talk about that with those two guys coming up. Uh, In the meantime, we have our big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, the city of Hillsboro in the Portland, Portland Hop, the Hillsboro Hops are trying to build a new ballpark. 
They're trying to meet minor league, major league baseball's new facility standards. They're talking about a 6,000-seat stadium in Hillsborough. Got a big, uh, got a big vote in the, uh, in the big win for the hops today as they, uh, the Washington County's commissioners approved $8 million from Washington County for a new city-owned ballpark that will help the hops meet Major League Baseball's facility requirements for minor league baseball. This now uh, puts the attention on the state legislature. Uh, Following today's vote, the remaining piece for the new city-owned ballpark is a $15 million commitment from the Oregon State Legislature. This is, uh, they're in the middle of their February legislative session. It will will, uh, conclude just days prior to the March 15th deadline imposed by Major League Baseball. Basically, um, if the project goes unfunded, the team leaves Hillsborough after the 2024 season, and the Portland region would forfeit. Um, they would forfeit, a, a, you know, the ability to have a team, and they'd forfeit about 190 million dollars in economic activity that's generated from the construction of the park, 64 million in economic activity for the stadium's first decade of operation, 380 jobs, 30 million in state and local income tax. Just makes sense. Washington County gets it. Maybe in a way that some other counties should pay attention to. Washington County gets it in maybe the way some other cities should pay attention to. But a big win for the Hillsborough Hops. They're getting $8 million bucks from Washington County to help with that new ballpark project in Hillsborough. Um, and uh, now the Oregon State Legislature is up to bat. All right, coming up, Mike Walter, former 49er linebacker, three-time Super Bowl champion. I'm having a little bit of trouble talking today, Stephen. i got to get this together for my interviews. Mike Walter, then J.J. Burden. I hope you're here for it. Well, the Niners against the Chiefs on Sunday for all the marbles. It's a Super Bowl. It struck me, you know, as I was booking our next guest, that most of us haven't played in the NFL. Have you played in the NFL? I haven't played in the NFL. I've watched the NFL. I've covered the NFL. I've covered nine Super Bowls. I've been there. I've seen the hoopla. But I don't know what it's like to go through that as the season advances, and it's a long season, the playoffs. Then comes the Super Bowl, and now you have two weeks between the NFC Championship, the AFC Championship, and the Super Bowl. What is that like? I think it's why, you know, we have guests like our next guest on the show. Give us a peek into that world. Mike Walter, former 49er linebacker, guy who played at the University of Oregon, the pride of Sheldon High School, three-time Super Bowl champion. Joining us now, Mike Walter, how are you, man? Hey, it's good to be here, John. Thank you. Yep, thanks for making time for us. Uh, You know, I know I... uh, I hit you up a couple times a year, and you know the Super Bowl coming one of them. And I got to ask you, you know, uh, as as you look at Super Bowl Sunday coming up, you know, what pops into your mind with your Super Bowl memories? Oh, uh, you know, just the memories of the guys that I played with. You know, I mean, I played with such great players. You know, some, a lot of Hall of Famers, and just a and it's just a battle of getting there. Um, all the work that it takes. You know, you talk about, you know 
college, you play 11, well, at least when I was in college, it was 11 games. They played <laughs> right. 12 now or whatever. But uh, so I remember, uh, you know, guys coming in after I've been in the league for a while from college, and all of a sudden, you know, you're playing, what, four preseason games or five sometimes with the 49ers, 16 regular season games, and then, you know, depending on where you're in playoffs, maybe three more games. So you're playing, you know, 23 games, 24 games compared to 11. And, uh, I mean, it was a big difference in, uh, from college. And, uh, uh, yeah, so it's just a battle of getting there. Let's talk about that. And, I, you know, I'll unpack. I want to go back to your high school days, your college days. But the three Super Bowls you were in it, were all very different games, obviously. And, you know, that first Super Bowl, which was, uh, you know, Super Bowl nineteen. You get the Miami Dolphins. It's a game that was played at Stanford Stadium in Palo Alto, so it was pretty much a home game, but not a home game for you guys. And how weird was that experience? And you had Don Shula and the Dolphins on the other side. Yeah, Dan Marino and what Mark Duper and uh, uh, who was the other guy? Clayton. Uh, Clayton. 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 Yeah. Exactly. You know, they were supposed to come in and throw the ball all over the place. Uh, of course, Bill Walsh used that as uh, as kind of a as locker room material. Like, look at these guys. How how are we even going to compete with these guys? These guys are all great. They're on Sports Illustrated. They're this and that. You know, he used that, and uh, so it was great. It was a hometown. Um, it was kind of weird though that after the game of all the Super Bowls, though, the funny little story is that the game ended and there was like nothing planned. I don't know if they thought maybe we weren't ever going to win the Super Bowl. But it was just like you put your clothes on and we kind of left the game. There was no party afterwards or no nothing. And all the other Super Bowls, we had those things. It was so. I think that I think even our, our old owner Eddie DeBartlos talked about trying to get all the guys together from that team and maybe still celebrating because we never really did that. It's Eddie DeBartolo Jr. and he was a big part of obviously the success in investing in players. How was he as an owner? Because I think he was a little ahead of his time. You see more of the owners more involved. In, uh, but what was he like as an owner? He was great. Uh, you know, he, he, he loved his guys. He was willing to, uh, at that time, there wasn't a salary cap. So you could spend what you wanted, you know, as far as players. And he did that. You know, we, he went out and we'd bring a guy like Jim Burt was a, was a defensive uh, nose tackle. It was just brought in to, paid him a lot of money to, just to play, play backup. And, um, you know, he was great with his guys. He, uh, he worked hard. Um, he enjoyed the team. That was something that he, you know, his dad gave it to him for a gift. And, um, but he was a great owner. And, and yeah. The, you know, Joe Montana was the MVP of that first Super Bowl you were part of. And you got guys like Joe Montana and Ronnie Lott in that locker room. That leadership, when you walk through the door, you joined the Niners. That leadership had to already have established a bunch of culture. Well, you know, they had one in 82, and there were still guys that were around from that. So they had that experience and whatnot. And, and, um, but it was just uh, when you're playing with a guy like Ronnie Ott or Joe Montana, you know, I just had come from Dallas, and so I wasn't really quite, you know, sure. We, we weren't a great team when I came from there. Also, they came to the 49ers and uh, Joe Montana and, uh, Freddie Solomon and, and Dwight Clark, the catch. Uh, I, mean, I was kind of in awe of just playing with some of those guys. Our guest, Mike Walter, former 49ers linebacker and three-time Super Bowl champion. Your second Super Bowl, 
uh, comes four years later, Super Bowl twenty three. It's the Niners and the Bengals. It's the Joe Robbie Stadium in Miami. Um, it is uh, it is a rematch of uh, you know the seven years earlier the Super Bowl. Sam White against Bill Walsh. It's you know two good friends in coaching and. Jerry Rice has his MVP performance, and uh, of course, uh, the the John Candy moment on offense uh, with with uh, Joe Montana in the huddle. And but uh, what do you remember of that one? Because that one had to be a little different, given that you know it's in Miami. Well, you're right. Jerry Rice gets the MVP, but uh, John Taylor made the play of the game. He made the catch. You know, so we're down. Uh, we're down. Uh, Yes, 16-13, and uh, there's, what, three minutes, 20 seconds left to go in the game, and then, you know, Joe comes down the field and does a precision drive, and just it's just a thing of beauty. And during the drive, he has time to look up in the stands to see John John Candy and and say in the huddle, like, hey, guys, look up there in the front row there. There's John Candy, just to kind of get everyone settled down. But, you know, only Joe could do that. but anyway, uh, John Taylor catches that touchdown pass. But that was a great game. That was the, the, the Icky Woods and uh, Boomer Esaias and uh, Chris Collinsworth was the receiver on that team. So, yeah, they had some good players. Yeah, that was Collinsworth's last game. I think he retired after that game. And, you know, it was kind of the, his last opportunity to kind of do something. But, you know, Montana, I, I know when we watch, like, the, uh, you know, the NFL Films version of that game, you, you see the people on the – on the Bengals sideline going, that's too much time for Joe. Give me an idea from your standpoint as you're watching the offense go onto the field and, you know, you've got, you know, the ball inside their own 10-yard line. You need to go get into field goal range to maybe force force overtime or score a touchdown, like 92 yards away from winning the game. How are you feeling, and and what are you guys saying to each other on the sideline? You know, I remember – being on the sideline and and it was it was a weird deal because it's like I think everyone on our team kind of knew that Joe was going to get it done because he had done it so many times before and he was just that kind of player and you could feel it in the stands that the people in the stands kind of knew that it was going to take place but the weirdest part is that you looked over at the other team and you could almost tell that they knew what was going to happen too and it was just <laughs> I mean Joe had done it so many times before and it's just like here he goes again you know, people will talk about his poise. He has said since that, you know, his heart was just pounding internally, but he did not exude that in the huddle. How important is that when you're in those moments to have a quarterback who is calm and methodical and making plays and can kind of lock in and focus that way? Well, what that Netflix show they did on Joe, if anyone wants, is a big Joe Montana fan, they should watch that. It's really interesting. In fact, I loved watching it going back, and it brought back some good memories and some things that I had even forgotten about. But it's called, you know, under pressure. And Joe was just so good under pressure. I mean, he he was just, you know, Joe was just like the average, ordinary guy kind of when you're hanging out with him. But uh, on the field, he just had a way of getting things done that he could control things and he could dominate. You know, just uh, just amazing, uh, amazing ability to to take control that that one certainly had drama that second super bowl that you were a part of and i got to ask you too with bill walsh you know yeah there were a lot of you know there's cases today where coaches lose the locker room you have egos that sort of grow out of control how did he manage how did he manage all those guys jerry rice joe montana ronnie lott you know you 
you mentioned that you had Charles Haley who came in for that Super Bowl. And, you know, when you have a locker room that has those kinds of personalities, how, how does a head coach manage that? Russ Francis, there's a guy that woke up every day and you never knew what he was going to do. And, and, and no one could control a guy like that but, but Bill Walsh. That, you know, as you get older and you're in business and, you, you know, you see the way, uh, you know, companies are run or organizations are run and you realize that the successful ones are they're there for a reason because they have good management and bill of all the coaches i played for had that ability to, to handle everybody and to, to to deal with people i mean he treated you know, mike walter a lot different than he treated russ francis and he treated joe montana different but he had that ability to kind of step outside the box and treat each individual player differently to get the most out of them. That, that was Bill's greatest gift, or his, I think is his best skill. Better than calling plays, better than doing you know the West Coast offense, whatever it was. It was how he could deal with individual players. Now, Russ Francis, for people who don't know, passed away in October, and you know I thought about calling you at the time, but tell us a little bit about what he was like as a teammate. I know he came out of retirement to play that one year. And you guys won the Super Bowl with him. Yeah, okay. So, Russ, I, I grew up in Eugene as a kid. Russ was probably six years older than me, maybe. And so, as a junior high kid going to Oregon football games, I mean, he was he was a god. You know, he was my favorite player as a kid. And so, uh, I, I get in the league, and uh, I'm playing uh, at Dallas. My first year, I get for Dallas. Things don't work out real well, so I end up getting released and get picked up by San Francisco. And your first day at every job is just absolutely awful. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's always you're nervous, you're this or that, whatever. Um, but I thought, ah, Russ Francis, he went to Oregon. I went to Oregon. I'll have this great connection. You know, that would be my kind of, you know, to, to make it easier for me, I'll just, you know, I'll have rest. And so we get into practice. The very first, uh, the drill, they, they, they say we're, we're servicing the, the team or doing scout team. And they say, well, just get on the tight end on this one, just jam them and then drop to the curl or whatever. So I get up on Russ, and at Dallas, we practiced really hard. At 49ers, not so. And then I found out that with Russ Francis was even less. He, did, he was on his own program. So <laughs> Russ, Russ comes off the ball, and I jam him, and I drop back to the hook. Well, I didn't know that I actually hit him in the Adam's apple really hard, whatever. <laughs> so the next play, they say, okay, let's play here. Just same thing, just jam the tight end and drop to the hook. So I line up, the ball snap, and Russ just steps right across the line, grabs me by my face mask, throws me to the ground, and it's game on. I mean, i got to fight the guy because <laughs> you're the new guy, and, you know, there's Russ. And so we get this huge, giant fight, and uh, they break us up finally, and I get in the huddle, and all the defensive guys think, like, what an idiot. But they're like, hey, good job. Do that again. Great job, Mike. <laughs> so oh. I go home. I- I get, I get done. I just want to go back to my hotel room and just like find the shower curtain and hang myself because it's just uh, yeah, you know right. like how did I that that was that was my end and I just totally blew it. <laughs> uh, so this is we we're talking about Bill Walsh and his great gifts. So the next day we're out of practice, we're stretching, and he's like, "Mike, come here." Calls me over. He goes, "Russ, come over here." And so he pulls us to the side where I've been stretching. He's like, "What's the deal, man? You got a couple ducks here. What you know? What, what what's the deal? You know?" But and then from that on, everything was perfect with Russ and I. But that's what that's what Bill could do. Bill, I was, I was an example of what Bill did there, you know. So, but it was my story. Russ was Russ was a great teammate. 
And, and as an athlete, like I, you know, I've heard so many stories about him, you know, watched him on the superstars as a kid, right on ABC sports. Uh, you know, he's, he, he's been, he was involved in wrestling, you know, basically the, the, uh, the equivalent of WWE and then, but he was just an amazing athlete, wasn't he? Yeah. He flew his plane to practice every day and, um, no, he was a great athlete. Um, Russ was a, um, you know, uh, yeah, he was, he was an exceptional athlete and a smart guy and a witty and did everything. I mean, he skydived, he windsurfed, he flew three different planes. He, he I mean, but Russ woke up every day and decided what he was going to do the rest of his life. It was, he was an amazing guy. <laughs> I love it. Mike Walter with us, three-time Super Bowl champion. That third Super Bowl, Super Bowl twenty four, um, absolute knockout. George Seifert's the coach now. Walsh has moved on. Fifty five ten is the final. Um, what did that experience feel like? Because I, I, you know, watching that game, I think it was something like twenty seven to three at halftime. Never really felt like it was a game, and and Joe Montana was just on. Yeah, he was. I I remember that game because um, I actually had an interception that game. So uh, coming out uh, after, uh, first of all, the half times are so long at Super Bowl. So you play these regular ga- regular season games and even the championship games, but the Super Bowl, they're, you know, they're having that giant uh, you know party out there and musical thing going on. So you're in the locker room and the coaches talk to you and then, then they run out of things to say and you're still sitting there and you're used to being <laughs> out on the field again and you're like looking for your backgammon board to play with the guy next to you or something, you know, because it's just, it's just taking forever, you know. But, uh, you know, we, we went back out in the field and we wanted to start strong and uh, uh, I end up, they end up throwing a little uh, kind of a, a pass they had thrown earlier and I actually got beat on it and I actually kind of recognized her right off the bat and I caught it for an interception and, uh, uh, was tackled just afterwards, but uh, um, I, the, the funny thing about that was is that uh, my brother, who was at the game, he uh, was going to the University of Oregon at that time, and he was in a fraternity, and he came back, and everyone was like high five and talking about how great the game was and everything, and, and my brother's like, well, how about my brother's interception? And they're like, what, what are you talking about? Because I guess the cable, and my home cam's cable went out, oh, or the electricity no. went out for like five minutes right when I got my interception, so no one ever saw it. Mike Walter picked off John Elway's first pass of the second half. Joe Montana threw a 28-yard touchdown pass on the next play. Uh, that will forever be in the books. Uh, Elway, did Elway tackle you? Who tackled you on the interception? No, you know, so the funny thing is that they give you, uh, you, you get game balls if you have, like, a good game or something great. So I got a, I got a game ball, that, the actual ball that I intercepted. When you take it off the sideline, they actually take it and they paint it up and they, they put a logo on it, and they'll, they'll say, like, you know, Mike Walter, and they'll have the, the Super Bowl logo on it. It'll say, and mine says, Mike Walter, two-yard interception return. And I'm like, oh, why, why didn't they just put, interception. you know, interception? But, you know, yeah, two-yard. Now the receiver, the receiver caught me from behind. That's just a, keeping your ego in check. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. Here exactly. are these exactly. great moments. You're still walking around with three Super Bowl rings, so that's not too bad. <laughs> Uh, do you wear the rings? Uh, no, I don't. I go I go years without putting them on my fingers. I, I had them out the other day. My daughter had a little uh, party during the championship game, and I brought them over there. And she had a bunch of friends over, and they all got the they all got the look. But I, you know, I don't I don't really wear them too much. I'll take them out, you know, this week or bring them in the office to show people. But uh, I don't wear them too much. No. 
the uh, you know some of the 49ers are going to Vegas yesterday uh, on the show. We had your old teammate uh, on to kind of talk about the good old days and uh, you know, but why not go to Vegas? Are you just uh, are you not wanting that scene, or you had enough of it three times? Well, you know, I've never been there as a spectator, and um, I, it, it, me personally, I actually made a call and tried to get some tickets for the championship game because. Mm. The, the truth is, is from an from a from a standpoint of spectator, there's nothing like the championship games uh, because it's just at someone's home field. You're either playing back in Chicago or you're playing at your home field. It's like the greatest environment ever. The Super Bowl is just kind of a it's a party. It's a you know, and it's I mean, it's still a great thing, but you know, it's 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 very corporate. It's very yeah. you know, people from wherever. I mean, you've been to a championship game before, haven't yep. you, John? And yeah. You, oh, you, yeah. Huge I mean, difference. There's nothing like it. I mean, without a doubt, those are my two favorite games of the year, the two championship games. And the Super Bowl is just, as a player, every you get, you're such a routine. You play once a week. I mean, the, I, one thing about playing, I, I got so tired of the routine because I could tell you exactly on – Wednesday's practice, the third period, you know, how many plays we were going to take of, you know, seven on seven, how many we were going to take of nine on seven. And, you know, I mean, it's just very, you know, you knew exactly what you're going to do. And you'd get ready for a, a game in one week and you do the same thing, everything for 11 years, you know. And all of a sudden you get to the Super Bowl and you got this extra week. And you've, you, you've already prepared. We've prepared just like we were going to play like on this Sunday and you have another week to go. And um, I hated it because then like George Seifert was just famous for like, you know, finding out like this coach from the other team when he was a high school coach did this. And we would spend all kinds of time practicing on things that they were never going to do just because we had all this extra time. And you just wanted to get there. You just wanted to play the game. Let me tell you, all those guys are just—they're—they're they're ready to play. They've been ready for, you know, they're just—they're uh, just waiting around for another week, and they're going to do all the Super Bowl stuff when you get there. But yeah, yeah, you're right about the feel of the game. It's it's very sterile. It's corporate. The timeouts are long. The halftime is long. It almost feels like you know I've watched from the press box, and I and I go, gosh, are they aware there's supposed to be a football game that's played here? Like commercials. And the halftime show have dominated this thing. And, uh, you know, I hope it gets back to the football, right? Uh, give me an idea of what you see with these teams. As a defensive guy, you look at the Niners, you look at the Chiefs. What, do, what kind of game do you think we're going to see on Sunday? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I, I, I like the Niners. Got to like them because, I, you know, that's, that's my team. Um, but I, I'll tell you something about the, the Chiefs and, you know, Patrick Mahomes. If there's a quarterback that I really just feel like – going to give you fits if it comes down it's a close game at the end i mean he's the best guy out there i really do i think he's i think he's just phenomenal but what the 49ers have done this year well last week i mean after the first half if, if that team shows up we're we're in trouble so we need to we need to bring our second half football team out there right. but uh, i look forward to being a, a close game which scares me because of mahomes i don't want a close game because i think he's just so good in close games, but I, I, I think the Niners have the overall better team, and I, I, I'm going to go with the Niners, of course. Yeah, and I think, you know, here's the other thing, Mike, like, you know, you, you've been around the game a long time. I always feel like if you're in the playoffs and you don't play well, you probably get beat, 
But what does it say about the Niners that, you know, it's been about a C, C minus, C plus sort of performance in both those games, and that yet they've found a way to win. Like, I want to chalk that up as a positive somehow. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't watch all their games, but it seems like the ones I went down to a game, I went to the alumni game when they played Cincinnati, I went to, and uh, they played terrible after, you know, being the, the best team in the league for a while. So I haven't been really good luck for them, and I, 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 I was really uh, kind of behind them at the beginning of uh, last week, and it sure didn't, uh, didn't start off very good. So, Give me an idea. You know, you're a kid who grew up, you know, Sheldon High School, born in Salem, go to high school in Eugene, um, go to the University of Oregon, get to the NFL. I'm, I'm thinking about another kid that, that has that same path, Justin Herbert. Uh, you know, I know, did his dad coach you? Is that right, when you were growing no, up? His, no, his, uh, his grandfather actually coached. He was, he was oh. my uh, biology teacher, my track coach. Uh, he was a football position coach. He didn't coach my position. And it uh, was my cycling. I was a big cycling guy. He was my cycling mentor. I, I used to do... 500 mile trips in the summer with him. We'd we'd go camping. Another teacher from from high school I was good buddies with, and uh, they're still great friends today. But uh, that was his uh, his grandfather, Roger Herbert, and um, his son Mark, who's who's actually uh, uh, Justin's father, was my brother's friend. So they they grew up together. I I love that. You know, you have. Um, this connection and you can, you know, but what do you think Herbert's been through having three college coaches and now three head coaches in the NFL? And it's got to be really hard to get some momentum that way. Yeah, he has been, you know, and um, I tell you, I, I've loved that kid from the first time I saw him play. And I remember going to the Oregon games and I'm sitting there and, and the fans are fans. And, uh, and I remember people talking about like they wanted to bench him. They didn't think he was doing good. And I, and I I'm looking at this kid and I'm saying like that is one of the best quarterbacks I've seen. I mean, I was so impressed with him at Oregon. Now, did they utilize him perfectly? Probably not, but um, the guy had all the talent in the world. I am the biggest. I mean, I, I, I do watch the 49ers. I probably watch more Charger games now just because of Justin. Great family. I mean, uh, just just a great story. Right, yeah, I love it. I love that. You know, will you watch the game? You're having a party at your house. How are you going to watch the game? You know, last week I went to my daughter's house, and she said she's going to have another party at her. So I I kind of like to, if, if I'm really into a game, I, I kind of like sitting on the couch kind of by myself where I can watch mm-hmm. the game. I'm not a big, uh, if it was somebody playing in the Super Bowl I really didn't care about, I might go out with a bunch of people and kind of hang out. But I kind of like to really kind of get into the game and uh, listen to what the announcers are saying and um, uh yeah, get up, and I don't care about the commercials too much. So just want to watch the game. Mike Walter, I appreciate you joining us. Three-time Super Bowl champion. Interception in the Super Bowl. He picked off John Elway. It's in the books. They can never take that away from you, Mike Walter. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me on. You bet. There he goes. Mike Walter. I love that interview. If you, uh, if you missed any of it, grab the podcast of it. Won three Super Bowls with the Niners. He knows what it takes to get there. Stay there, and uh, and play in those big games. Uh, what a uh, what a wonderful career! Ten plus years in the NFL. Coming up in the five o'clock hour, JJ Burden, former wide receiver with the Kansas City Chiefs. We're equal access here on this program. Like I said. 
Love that interview with Mike Walter, former 49er, three-time Super Bowl champion. Anna's popped into the studio. Anna is fresh off throwing my lunch away today. By the way, can I tell a story here, Stephen? I would love <laughs> After that tease, yeah, I want to hear what the rest of the story this is. <laughs> I can't even wrap my head around what happened today. Okay? Super busy day, you know, interviewing, uh, setting up interviews with Jake Dickert, Mike Walter, J.J. Burden. Uh, reaching out to the mayor of Las Vegas, trying to get her booked on the show. Mayor of Beaverton, trying to get her booked on the show. Mayor of Portland, trying to figure out why I'm getting crickets in return there. Um, in in the meantime, I had to run a couple of quick errands. Said to Anna, you know what? There's this teriyaki chicken place I like. Let's pop in there. I'm real hungry. So uh, we uh, order, and Anna... And I sit, and I only had time to eat like half of the lunch. And so I had a to-go box, and I put it in the to-go box and handed her two to-go to containers while I took the tray and her empty plate to go give it to the proprietor of the uh, little uh, teriyaki place. And as I turn back around, I'm watching her throw my to-go boxes in the trash. <laughs> Like what? I can't what was explain that? It. I can't explain it. It was just I we were tidying up and I just spaced it and I threw it away. And I tried to rectify the yeah. situation as quickly as I could. Right. You know, it had one of those trash cans, Stephen, that has the flap on it, like the swinging saloon doors, the garbage <laughs> can. And so she had dropped my styrofoam containers into the trash and then uh, the my jaw dropped as I turned around. I was like you just threw my lunch away and uh my jaw dropped and she then went like all the way to her shoulder trying to reach into the trash receptacle and she pulled it back out she retrieved it and but it was upside down and it was dripping teriyaki sauce but it was fine it stayed closed <laughs> and i said never mind i don't want it now it's okay pass what was that? Oh. What are you doing? What is that? You just kind of go into a protocol or what? Like this? Like what happened there? Explain that to me. I don't know. We were just in the process of tidying up. And normally I'm very conscious of not wasting food. I mean, I just grew up where it's like you got to clean your plate. If you have to go, even if you don't like the food, you're taking it to go if you don't finish it. That's, you know my credo but for some reason in that moment i just had a a space case moment never again and i threw your food away and i realized it in horror and tried to fix it it's okay i forgive you <sighs> but i'm never handing you my to-go box so again. mad steven he was so mad i was annoyed i kind of i'm kind of john's side on this one i mean what are you doing anna i mean it's lunch <laughs> you can't be throwing lunch out thank you <laughs> and here's the sad part i was really hungry okay and i had <laughs> I had very carefully, like, separated half the teriyaki and half the rice. And this isn't my style. I'm normally just like, eat it all, eat it now. There's no tomorrow. You know? And I had separated half of it. And I said, I'm just going to eat this right now. And then I'm going to save the rest for later because um, I don't have time right now to sit here and finish this. Like, I need to get back and get into the studio and... And she threw it away. And the lady who owns and operates the teriyaki place just laughed. She was laughing, and I was like, I guess that's, you know, that's what happens. 
Never again. You'll never again I will I hand you any of that. So that happened. That's a thing. Uh, Bruce in Portland has called in. He's got a question. Bruce, what did you have for lunch? I have a question for you. What did you eat for lunch? Yeah, I usually pack lunch. I'm one of those guys that doesn't go out. I have, I'm actually a pretty healthy eater. I have fruit. I have strawberries, apples, peaches, usually a sandwich, turkey or something like that. A protein bar, you know, trail mix, stuff like that. Cool. I like Um, that. Thank you. I would fall asleep. If I went out and ate a big lunch for... At any point, I'm a guy that just kind of dozes off after lunch and can't make it through the afternoon as, as alert as I'd like to be. You know, and I was um, craving the teriyaki chicken. I don't know why. Maybe my blood sugar was low or something. And I was like, I need that teriyaki chicken. And so I was like, I haven't gone to that place in like a year. And there it was, yeah, thrown in the trash. Especially as a leftover, you know, stuff like that reheats pretty well. So I know I'd be a little disappointed. And I think you might owe him a trip to the back to the teriyaki place for dinner tonight or something. Oh you know? my gosh, he won't. His pride, he won't accept it. He'll be like, no, it's no. over. The moment was nice, but <laughs> the moment's on. gone. <laughs> uh, what's up, Bruce? What's on your mind? Hey, I've got uh, baseball. I called last week, but obviously this new announcement on the red tail it's brought the public awareness to a new level and the pushback that I've read and seen on some of the social sites is about 90% against and maybe 10% for mainly because of infrastructure and other issues, neighborhood. But uh, what happened, I've got, and I've been researching a little into baseball in Portland period, and you might've already visited this topic, but the Hillsboro Hawks and the location, you know, Ron Tonkin stadium out there and the MLB is, push to make them rebuild and up that stadium at a cost of 150 million dollars is what i'm seeing thrown out there as a number and all the shenanigans going on behind the scenes out there and what is why can't major league baseball get together with the hops and do the sunset corridor i mean it makes more sense but all this stuff being done behind the scenes kind of puts everything at you know that's this is the whole thing why the public doesn't trust baseball because all of a sudden it's like we're going to leave if you don't pay to build us a new stadium um, and it's essentially what's going on out there with threats. But they're $100 million short on the rebuild. How can that be? And and like I said, maybe you already covered this because this has been yeah. going on since June. And, like, what is going on with that whole operation? Yeah, we had Kayla Wambacher, the Hops GM, on the show um, just a couple of weeks ago. But it's a really interesting thing. For people who don't know, um, Major League Baseball restructured Minor League Baseball. And what they ended up doing is they ended up saying, hey, you're going to have certain minimum requirements for the facility. Uh, And some of it is player training, the locker room, batting cages. So there's certain things, certain requirements that minor league stadiums have to have. And this goes for the team in Eugene as well. They're struggling uh, with the improvements as well. And so the Hops initially started looking at, okay, can we improve the stadium to the point where Major League Baseball will be okay with it, the existing stadium, and then they started to. There was a water main that would have to be relocated. There were ever there were other problems, and they suddenly were like, "Gosh, it's almost more cost effective to just build a brand new facility and have two ballparks out there than there is to have you know just to do an improvement." And so the decision was made to build the Hops' new ballpark and have it be a minor league facility. It's only going to have seven or 8,000 seats, so you can't use it for a major league thing. Uh, but, you know, there have been some people who said, why not? Why couldn't you do a bigger scale stadium? And 
And I just don't think it works. In a, and there's, you know, again, we're talking like a major league stadium, 35,000 seat stadium. You're talking about a billion dollar project versus, uh, you know, 180 or 150 million. So as the hops began to look at this, the cost started to go up, started to get more and more cost prohibitive because construction costs were rising. Then, uh, you know, the hops needed some money from Washington County and they need some money for the state legislature. And also the hops ownership group said, hey, they're going to put their own money into this thing. And what it ultimately came down to was, you know, they needed eight million dollars from Washington County and they needed 15 million from the Oregon State Legislature. And the return that the hops were, you know, looking at and pitching to Washington County and to the state was, hey, if you don't have a team here, you lose, uh, you know, you lose, you know, $30 million a year in state and local income taxes over the next 10 years that would be paid by the players and by the front office and the staff who are working there. So if you lose the operation, you lose $30 million in state and local income taxes. So they were basically saying to Washington County and to the state legislature, hey, if you put $8 million and $15 million in, you're getting it back. Like this pays for itself over a decade in return. And so, you know, Kale Wambacher came on the show. I asked him why it was important to get state funding and county funding. And, you know, I asked him, like, look, there's other there's other needs, right? Homelessness, drug addiction, um, mental health initiatives. There's bigger things than baseball. But here's what Kale Wambacher had to say about all of it. Your listeners are absolutely right. There are more important issues than sports. And I think our argument, especially to state legislators, is this doesn't need to be an or. Why can't it be an and? Why can't we find resources to help with homelessness and drug addiction and housing and schools? And why can't we find some money to help fund quality of life and um, entertainment and things for us to do in in, in this market um, and celebrate, you know, some of the good things that we have, because quite frankly, if this facility isn't built, the team's going to be forced to leave. It's not our owners that are going to move the team because we live here in Hillsborough and enjoy it. But, you know, we'd probably sell the team and that new owner would have to move it. Yeah, and we went on to talk about, you know, the state would get the money back from income taxes. Our lobbyist has used the line. It's not that the state can't afford to do that. It's not that if the state can afford to do this, it's can the state afford not to do this? Because if the team is lost, if this venue isn't built, um, there will be an impact to the loss of tax revenue going to the state. And then you'll miss on that upside of what the tax revenue will be if the facility is done. So Washington County today, the county commissioners approved eight million bucks for the ballpark. And now it will go to the state legislature. They need $15 million commitment. If they get that in this session, then uh, Major League Baseball will keep the hops in Hillsborough. The stadium will get built. be a nice place to go see a concert uh, during the summer and go see a uh, single-A, high-A affiliate uh, baseball game. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Former Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver J.J. Burden. He's very excited about this interview coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. He's tweeting about it. He's saying, let's talk about the Chiefs. Let's talk about the Super Bowl. He is fired up, and he'll be joining us at 520, right after the 5 at 5. And by the way, the 5 at 5 is is an amazing thing to see come together. It's like watching Patrick Swayze on a uh, one of those spinning clay wheels in, uh, in Ghost. It's just kind of a thing really? of a – it's a spectacle to see come together. 
Anna is over here crafting the five at five during the commercial breaks. And I hear her say something about a carrier pigeon, and I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm working on the five at five. What do you, what's with a carrier pigeon? This is a racing pigeon. Oh, okay. It spent eight months in state custody, and it's been freed from jail after allegations of espionage. We arrested this pigeon? No. The United States government arrested this pigeon? No. This has to do with China and Taiwan. It's an open water racing pigeon from Taiwan. Okay. It was held for eight months on suspicion of spying for China. Okay, so the Taiwanese government thought that the pigeon was working for China. Yes. The double agent. Yes. The double pigeon agent. I don't know why it took them eight months to determine that this thing, it, it had two rings tied to its legs carrying words that looked like Chinese. That's what the police said when they first captured this bird in May. So they captured the bird, mm-hmm. and they're like, the bird won't talk. Just keep him quiet. Keep him locked up until he starts talking. <laughs> he never talked. He never talked. So, like, is that a thing? Like, they're having pigeons spy? Like, don't they have drones? Don't they, you know, like, don't they spy like everybody else? You might think, but maybe pigeons are more effective. I don't know. I like the spy game more when it was, like, leggy Russians. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like in the James Bond movies. Well, and I guess it wasn't necessarily Taiwan that held this pigeon. It was India. So it was just released after eight months of prison. Uh, It was released in India, in Mumbai. So I don't know what, you know, the country of India was doing to try and get this thing to spill. But apparently they have deemed that it's it's okay to release. And uh, what does this have to do with sports? Like, why is this in the five of five? Because it's a race. It's a racing pigeon, which apparently, like, is really popular in Taiwan. I mean, it's 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 very controversial because it's technically cruel to the pigeons. So it's like a famous racing pigeon. Yeah. Well, I don't know about it. It's famous now. It's it's a lot of people are talking about what, this pigeon. Where do the pigeon do after getting out of the pen? Like to straight to Thailand or what? Like to the red light districts? You know, I don't know. Like is he the Jordan of racing pigeons? <laughs> Eight months in the can. This pigeon's finally free. Where did it go? It flew to Mazatlan. It flew to Cancun. I don't know. But um I didn't even know that Taiwan racing pigeons were such a big deal. Like they can earn more in one race than a baseball player can in a whole season because people gamble on these pigeon races. Mike Tyson, big on pigeons. Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah. And we had him on the show one time, and he was talking all about the pigeons and where he got them, and they had the best breeders. And, you know, he uh, it was in really, like, it was the one time of the interview where he really lit up. You know, yeah. like, you know, here's Mike Tyson. I finally got him on the show. And then he found out that I grew up in Gilroy, mm-hmm. the garlic capital of the world. And he was like, oh, that's where I get my pigeons. <laughs> you know, and it was like that part of the interview. Um, you get them from breeders. Or you breed your own. Now, I grew up in a in a town in California called Gilroy. And I heard you went there to get pigeons. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. Why Why do you go to places like that to find the birds? Is it that hard to find a breeder that, that you really like? No, no. They, they, those are the best breeders in the world. It's amazing. Yeah, my friend John and those Ramsey and all those guys up there, man, those guys got the best pigeons in the world, especially the rolling pigeons. 
Mike Tyson is our guest. Um, you know, Gilroy, the garlic city. That's You're from right. the garlic that's, that's right. <laughs> you know, you smell it when you come into town. Uh, Gilroy is beautiful. I don't care what no one says. Thank you, Mike. Mike Tyson talking about my hometown and the pigeons. His pigeon thing is not just a little hobby. No. Like, it's a thing for him. Yes. I'm sure he knew about this pigeon being in captivity. You know? maybe He the... traveled to Poland last year to acquire 100 pigeons from a breeder in a Polish village. He got into it, you know, being a kid who grew up in New York City. And he got into it because they were, uh, they were racing the pigeons from the rooftops and raising them and breeding them. And then when he, you know, this is a great example. You know, Mike Tyson found money after his boxing career. And, and you know, he went with what he loved. Poured it into pigeons <laughs> and real estate and that face tattoo. You know? <laughs> it's like, so I never said he was a bastion of good decision making. You know, he's not going to be accused of that. You know? But, uh, yeah, yeah, we had a pretty in-depth conversation about the pigeons. Well, it's a, it's a thing because my wife's uncle is into raising pigeons. I found that out on Thanksgiving, I believe. Really? Yeah. How did you, how did you find that out? I, did, I, I heard him talking about it. I overheard it. I was eavesdropping, and uh, he said you can make pretty decent money, like you know, in the, in like a thousand bucks for a win. Get him on the show. <laughs> I need to talk to your uncle. <laughs> I I have so many questions about this. How does the pigeon know the race course? I'm sure that the they can be trained, Anna. I guess. I don't know. I'm still baffled over why you threw my lunch away. <laughs> So I'm, I'm I don't have all the answers today. <laughs> Lingering mysteries. You know, ling- Mike he can't Tyson. think straight. It's hungry. He's hungry. He can't think straight. <laughs> so he once dumped a girlfriend after he she killed and boiled one of his pigeons. Well, what I keep like you, I'm wondering what he did to deserve that. Well, you know, I'm breaking up with anybody if they're boiling pigeons. I mean, that's yeah. a, that's a red flag. In Wasn't my this a movie? Wasn't that part of a movie? Mike no, Tyson? that was Rabbit. That oh. was the Rabbit. Got one of Mike Tyson's pigeons. We got to get Tyson back on the show and Do we, just talk about pigeons, mm. or just uh, you know what? Maybe there's a pigeon racing expert who listens to the show. We always, that happens. It never ceases to amaze me that someone will call in and be like, "Yeah, I am. I happen to be one of the foremost experts on pigeon I racing." I'd rather hear from some other pigeon expert than Mike, than Mike Tyson? Tyson. I don't know. I th- I just find like he had options. He had choices of what he could have done after boxing, and he chose pigeons. Well, he and did other it, things. He did it he before had choices boxing. in other aspects of his life too. Yeah, he did it as well, a kid though too. It wasn't like yeah. it was just a hobby after boxing. He, he did it growing up. Yeah, Mike Tyson is uh, one of those polarizing figures that we have had on the show in the past. All right, the five at five's coming up. Pigeon's not going to be part of it because you just let the pigeon out, so to speak. <laughs> and so it'll be uh, it'll be five other big stories that Anna comes up with. But that's what my commercial breaks are like. She's going, she's muttering about pigeons, and I'm going, what? <laughs> And then that that subsequently the pigeon flies onto the show. So there it is. So if you're a pigeon and you're out there listening to this program, just know Anna's got your back. All right, leave it here. The five at five. Then JJ Burden, former Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver, will be joining us. What? Still ahead. 49ers and Kansas City Chiefs in Las Vegas, talking a lot about the game coming up. Kyle Shanahan, 49ers coach. Uh, these are the best. I mean, this is why we all love this sport. It's why the best sport in America, best sport in the world. Obviously, we got the best fans in the world. We. 
Niner fans show, are they in Vegas? Andy Reid, meanwhile, trying to rally the Raider fans to root for the Chiefs? Well, it's a great, it's a great week in a great city. Uh, we appreciate the hospitality from the, the Raiders and Raider fans because that relationship is not the best always <laughs> between teams. But they've, they've uh, welcomed us in, and, and we appreciate that. So, And then I get to play against this guy here who's a great one, man. And so um, I appreciate that opportunity. Travis Kelsey answering a lot of questions about you-know-who. I put on myself, I promise you that. I've, uh, that's just the, the heart of a competitor. Um, but uh, she's definitely brought a lot of new faces to the game, and uh, it's been fun to experience that. She's, uh, she's unbelievable. She's, uh, she's rewriting the history books herself. Uh, I told her I'll have to hold up my end of the bargain and come home some hardware, too. I don't know if I brought too much to the game. I think I, I just go out there and have fun. You know, um, Taylor has an unbelievable fan base that uh, that follows her and supports her throughout her life. And uh, it's been fun to kind of gather the Swifties in the Chiefs kingdom and uh, open them up to uh, the, the football world and the sports world. And it's been cool to just experience all that. Brock Purdy on the other side, 49ers quarterback, talking about the influence of Joe Montana and Steve Young. Yeah, I mean, obviously just what they've done, you know, for this organization, the history. Um, for me as a quarterback, it's like, all right, you know, there's obviously some big shoes to fill, and, and I'm not going to compare myself to them or anything, but, you know, they've set the standard for, for winning in this organization. When you look at the 49er logo, you think of success and Super Bowls because of those guys. And so um, that's, you know, something that I have in the back of my mind, like, all right, there's a standard here. Um, and at the same time, when I talk to them, they've been they've been so great to me and supporting me and everything. And and um, when you talk to them, you just when you're in, your pre- in their presence, you just you're obviously in, in the presence of greatness. You know, they got the job done, and so definitely makes you makes you think like, all right, let's step it up and obviously let's live up to the standard that they set. Live up to the standard, Brock Purdy, 49ers, Chiefs, Sunday, 3:30 kickoff, Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. Niners a two-point favorite in the game. Patrick Mahomes says they do not feel like the underdog. He never feels like he's an underdog. Uh, Anna, you ready to do the 5 of 5? Yeah, all those guys are pretty well-trained in media. I mean, you know, they're all pretty grounded. They yeah. say the right things. They sound authentic. Like, they've they've obviously done some training. And they've been there before. These, they, yeah, that but too. These organizations, I think, you know, it's not like... It's not the first time for the Chiefs to be in the Super Bowl or around big games. 49ers have played there in the last few uh, NFC Championship games, made the Super Bowl against the Chiefs just a few years ago, and getting a rematch. Um, yeah, I found it interesting today, uh, What you know, the, uh, the college academic All-American, the service that puts out the college All-Americans, mm-hmm. the academic All-Americans, uh, sent out a news release saying this is the first time in Super Bowl history that two academic All-Americans will start at the quarterback position for both teams. Hmm. Patrick Mahomes, academic All-American at Texas Tech, Brock Purdy at uh, Iowa State. So the Big 12 Conference having uh, a lot of fun as well with this Super Bowl, the academic All-Americans on the podium. Anna, you ready? Yes. Here we go, the 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Number one. Uh, let's stay with the Super Bowl momentarily. Patrick Mahomes is trying to keep his team focused on the game and avoiding the Super Bowl parties that lead up to the game. 
He emphasized in that press conference last night that the team's trip to Las Vegas is a business trip and revealed that he told his teammates he would bring everyone back to Vegas to celebrate should they secure the Lombardi Trophy. All right, he wants a win. He, he, you know, I, th- I think Patrick Mahomes is smart. He's obviously the heart, the soul, the leader of that Chiefs team. Yeah, I mean, I think you approach like any other game. I, mean, I never feel like the underdog. I always feel like we have a chance to win the football game, and that's how we approach every single game. And or we were underdogs in the last Super Bowl. So all you can do is just have that same mindset of just going out there, playing your best football, get, uh, best football and hoping that you uh, end up with a win. Look, I think he's a tremendous leader. The 49ers, meanwhile, I think try and do take a little bit of that, uh, hey, we're the favorite team off. I kind of wonder if the, the stories yesterday about the 49ers complaining about the grass field was – Kyle Shanahan's way of kind of pushing back against, you know, like it, you know, putting a chip on the Niners' shoulder. They're, look at the practice field that they gave mm-hmm. us. They gave us the UNLV practice field, not the Raiders' practice field. It's too soft. It's not up to standard. I kind of wondered if there's a little gamesmanship going on from Shanahan to kind of push back. Mm. We'll have several more days of this. <laughs> Settle in. Number two. Trailblazers uh, are talking about Shaden Sharp undergoing surgery. They're saying that during his ramp up in basketball activities to return to play, he had his symptoms get worse. So due to his lack of progress, they've determined that he will undergo corrective surgery to address a core muscle injury. It's tentatively planned for later this week, and they are not releasing a timeline for his return to play. Um. Look, I think uh, for Blazer fans, it's a blow. I think, Stephen, you and I were talking about this during commercial break. You thought he might be back. Yeah, I was talking to some people, and they were kind of expecting Shane Sharp maybe to come back soon. I, As I asked him, I said, hey, when's Sharp coming back? Is he ever coming back? And he said, yeah, I'd expect it to be soon. And then this news comes out. So I think it kind of, you know, they must have found something that they didn't like. And uh, it, is, it is unfortunate because the Blazers do need to figure out who their future backcourt is. And they have three guys on their on the roster and we got to figure out if they can play together. So it, it's disappointing because it seems like it's one of these injuries, John, where it's going to be a long time. Like it's probably the probably the whole season, I would guess. But the players don't need him to come back to win games. They're not trying to win games. They don't need him back. So I feel like this could be one of those injuries where he's out the rest of the season. We really can't figure out exactly who's going to be uh, building around this roster. Give me an idea, though. How does this affect the Blazers' season? We're two days from the NBA trade deadline, noon on Thursday. Does this affect their plans for Thursday that you know they won't have Shaden Sharp for the foreseeable future? I don't think so. We had talked about Malcolm Brogdon and how I, I thought that they should trade him. They should be looking to trade him. I think that they are kind of wanting to keep Malcolm Brogdon, and they've kind of gone away from uh, trading him away for draft picks, which I don't quite understand, but that's kind of what I've been hearing around, uh, talking to people that the Blazers do want to keep Malcolm Brogdon going into next season. He's under contract for another year. He likes it in Portland, but... I don't think the sharp injury necessarily has any effect on any of this. I think there could be a minor move made here or there, just maybe you know unload a guy. Uh, but I don't think it'll be any of the significant players. So I just kind of think the Blazers are rolling along and uh, going to do nothing like they usually do. I kind of wonder though too if this is a little bit of gamesmanship. If you're trying to increase your leverage for keeping Brogdon and maybe get more for him in a potential trade offer, do you announce that Sharp's out for the foreseeable future? Do you uh, do you do everything the Blazers are doing to this point? You know, and the fact that you're seeing and hearing that they might want to keep him, I just kind of wonder if that is a way that the Blazers increase their leverage. 
Thursday's trade deadline, noon Pacific time. Number three. Clayton Kershaw and the Dodgers have agreed to a contract for the 2024 season, but he'll start the season on the injured list as he recovers from shoulder surgery that he just had in November. Uh, He's expected to miss the entire first half of the season. His return date will be at some point next summer. Uh, This season or this year will mark his 17th season with the Dodgers. He has spent his entire career with the organization and I just don't, how does he fit in with Shohei? Well, I think uh, he doesn't hurt you. I mean, even last year, he made the All-Star game the last two years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's not, he's hurt. He's not going to be there for the, at the beginning of the year. But can he give you 10 or 12 starts down the stretch? Like, you know, he could be another layer. Not that the Dodgers need any more help, but he'll be 36 during the season. He, you know, he went 13-5 and five last year, 2.46 ERA. Um, I think he gives you something. And... You know, I don't know the details of the contract, whether or not it includes provisions for the Dodgers, should he not be healthy, but I, it's just another layer. And maybe this is a way of the Dodgers kind of going, you know, we think we're going to be really good. Would, you know, having Clayton Kershaw in the second half of the season, if he is healthy, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, number four. Oh, wait, what? I no. wanted to add, uh, it may be a bad thing. Do you remember what he did last year in the playoffs, John? It wasn't great. His playoff performances yeah. haven't been great. What, a third of an inning, six yeah. runs? Maybe he can hurt you. Uh, he was making $20 million last year. Did you Did you say how much he's, they're paying? I did not. Do you know how much it is? It'll come out. Mm-hmm. It'll come out. But he made $20 million last year and <laughs> laid an egg in the postseason. So. Number four. All right, let's talk about Bill Belichick, Boomer Esiason. Remember him? He has a podcast because guess what? Lots of people had podcasts. And he's saying his sources are telling him that Bill Belichick actually received an offer from the Atlanta Falcons for their top head coaching job but turned it down. I don't know if I buy that. I don't know. But he seems so confident about it. He says he heard it from a source that supposedly Arthur Blank was brought into Bill Belichick and and could have offered him the job and that Bill Belichick turned it down. I this might be kind of like the time when, you know, uh Justin Wilcox turned down Oregon. Like how was the job offered to Bill Belichick? Mm-hmm. You know, was it offered with the stipulation that the Atlanta Falcons get to pick his offensive and defensive coordinator mm. and his staff and his recruiting, you know, his general manager and everything? He has no control. Like it might have been offered to Bill Belichick in a way that you know, Bill Belichick's never going to accept it. Just so the Falcons can go back and say, hey, we, you know, hey, we tried. We, we tried with Belichick. It's not a total insult. But I think that's much the way that the Oregon job was offered to Wilcox several years ago when Dan Lanning took it. It was more of a, hey, we're going to offer you this job, but we're going to offer it to you in a way that you probably will never accept it. And it will appease the uh, portion of the Oregon fan base that was really rooting for Wilcox to get the job. But I don't know. I I need to hear it from more than Boomer. (laughs) Is it okay that Boomer isn't like my source of news on this one? It's okay. Is there number five? Ah, what? Dang it, what? sorry. I had a question about Belichick for you. Yes. So, you know how Doc Rivers came back in the middle of the season for a good team? you think there's a chance there's, like, a good team that struggles and then brings in Belichick midseason? Ooh, yeah, I think there is. I also think there's a chance Belichick does some television and we find out that he's, like, awesome on TV 
and we never want to go back. Like Belichick and Tony Romo on the broadcast well, <laughs> next season. For the dream. record, our, our friend Boomer Esiason thinks that Belichick thought better of the Falcons' job because maybe he just wants to see what happens, that there may be five or six job openings mm. next year in a better situation. Could be. Where an owner says, hey, I want to go down this path with you. Okay, okay, if I hit the My mic is turned five. off. My mic's turned okay. off. All right. Number five. <laughs> uh, let's see. NIL Madness. Georgia quarterback. Mm. I mean, pretty cool to be a Georgia quarterback. Even cooler when you get an NIL deal that allows you as a college student to buy a Lamborghini that retails for more than $270,000. Carson Beck. That is the vehicle that Carson Beck uh, is holding the keys to. It's a Lamborghini. It's black. It's called the Performante. It's got such a fancy name, I can barely say it. And it's a crossover car, like an SUV. Congratulations to him. He, however, denies the rumors that his NIL deals brought him back uh, for the 24 season. He says he just wants to come back and win a championship with his team. Back in 1979, Eric Dickerson was one of the best high school football players in the country. Texas A&M wanted him. And there was a rumor going around that, that the school bought him a gold Trans Am to get him to commit to the Aggies. He ended up at SMU. He kept the car. So there was this big rumor that Eric Dickerson took the car from the booster and then flipped and went to SMU anyway. Um, now, Dickerson says he did receive a suitcase filled with $50,000. <laughs> he did not take it. He said he turned the money down. And he said his grandmother bought him the new Trans Am. He saw it on a at a car dealership. He liked it. Bird on the hood, like Burt Reynolds. Fins <laughs> on the side. Um, and he said uh, his grandparents bought him the booster. I mean, bought him the car, not a booster. And so, uh, pretty sweet ride for Eric Dickerson, 1979. But... And now a sweet ride for Carson Beck. I don't know if I would go with a $270,000 sports car. I would feel like it would be really stressful driving that thing around, trying to keep it protected. You'd have to park it in the far end of the Costco parking lot to keep anyone from scratching it or dinging it. I don't know. But I'm not really, you know, I'm not in the market for that. So. I, I, I suspect this NIL business yes. is going to create a bigger division between the hackers and the non-hackers in college football. There's always been a division. Sure. Like, And what I mean by that is there are grinders that you can trust on third down and on Saturday night. You know, you can trust players. Coaches will say, you know, I can't trust you on Saturday night. How can I trust you on Saturday afternoon? Like, you know, in this as a person. Mm -hmm. The kind of person that's going to grab a $270,000 automobile as part of their NIL deal, I'm not so sure I want that person on third and six. I'm not so sure. I, I can't that person be the same I, person I, you trust? I don't. I don't think so. Really? I I have a hunch that we're going to see some massive flameouts from some of the NIL recipients, 
And and what comes along with that is going to be the boosters and the donors being just really unhappy with their money being squandered on a what kind of car was it? Lamborghini. On a Lambo for a player who's no longer at your school. Well, good for him. It's not the gold Trans Am. But uh <laughs> it's just a wild it's this wild world that we're living in. I just can't I really can't wrap my head around it. Like, to, I can't yeah. imagine going to school and seeing a fellow student drive on campus with a car like that. I uh, Damian Martinez, the Oregon State running back, put out a photograph on social media of himself with his new car. He's got a Dodge Charger Scat Pack. Yes, I okay? saw that. Yeah, Pretty nice looking car. Yes. It's not a Lambo. <laughs> But, you know, it's a nice-looking car. Like, retails um, somewhere between forty dollars to $70,000, okay? Yeah. It's a really nice car. And I reached out to the NIL Collective at Oregon State to ask them, and they said that they were not involved mm. with that transaction. Now, it may just be that the dealership is letting Damian Martinez use the car. Could be he's negotiated a deal directly with the dealership. It may be that he took NIL money and bought the car or leased the car. We don't know. But well, it, yeah, that's what. So Carson Beck is saying that he bought the car outright; that it wasn't directly tied to an NIL deal. Okay. So like C.J. Stroud and Quinn Ewers uh, with Texas, they landed similar cars actually through NIL deals. He's saying he bought this car outright. I think that those guys are smarter than him. You know, they got. If they got the deal from the dealership, you know, why pay for the uh, cow? You know? Yes. If you can get the milk for free. That's right. Is that the same? That's the same. Are we screwing that up? It's not normally used when talking about NIL deals. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I think it does hold up. Okay? J.J. Burden is coming up, former Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver. Why are we bringing a Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver on this show? Well, because... We had a former 49er linebacker, Mike Walter, on the program earlier. J.J. Burden, next. And a good friend of ours just texted me. He's listening to the show. He said, I love the idea of an Anna that drives a Lamborghini, but also still drives over to the Costco parking lot to pick up a 12-pack of muffins and then parks all the way over by the empty PetSmart just to make sure the car doesn't get dinged. Yeah, that would be me. Very conscientious. 100%. <laughs> All right. J.J. Burden, former Kansas City Chiefs wide receiver, joins us. Chiefs Niners on Sunday at the Super Bowl. J.J., how you doing? I'm doing good, John. How you guys doing up there? We're well. We're well. We were just talking about a story. The Georgia quarterback got a $273,000 Lamborghini with his NIL money. Um, long way from J.J. Burden's college days, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, being a two-sport athlete at Oregon, I would have loved some of that NIL money. <laughs> That's right. You think, like, give me, like, when you talk to athletes of your era, college guys, pro guys that you played with, you know, what do you guys talk about when it comes to NIL? Oh, just how much they got it wrong. I mean, we all feel that college athletes should be paid something. I, we all felt that. But I just, I wish they could have got this more fair you know it's a little bit crazy now it's, i think they've created this monster 
And we're just hoping they can figure out how to get it under control because it's really just a facet of college game that's not real positive right now. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, they're trying to get it back on the rails, but it's like putting the toothpaste back in the tube at some point. Um, you got a Super Bowl this week. Chiefs are in it. Your phone has to light up when, and you know, the Chiefs are around a big game like this. It's been several seasons. Uh, how are you feeling about Sunday's game? Feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good. You know, I'm just so impressed with what the Chiefs have accomplished the last, you know, five, six years and just seeing them in the Super Bowl again. I'm just, I'm feeling confident that the experience is really going to take over like it has the last couple of games in the playoff. Yeah, I think we saw that, right, in, in Baltimore and certainly uh, as, you know, Patrick Mahomes at quarterback. Give us an idea how valuable that is. Big game experience. And, you know, you played a long time in the league. How, how much does that experience help a team in a week like this? It makes a big difference because when you got guys who've been there, done that, you know, Patrick, you got Travis, obviously even the coach too, those guys know how to prepare the newer guys, prepare the younger guys, and help them understand what it's going to take to maintain your composer, composure but still raise your level of play in this big game. And so when you're, you know, when you're in the huddle and you can look over and see, it's kind of like what I used to do with Joe Montana. You look over and you see a guy that has been there, done that. It just kind of calms you. It gives you that confidence to know that you just got to do your job because he's going to do his job. Give us an idea. You know, we talked to Mike Walter, former 49er earlier. He was sort of recounting, you know, Montana in that great Super Bowl drive, 92 yards to win the game. And, you know, you got a chance to get him when he went to Kansas City. What was that experience like for you just in general? Well, just a couple. One, it was a little shocking. You know, one minute you're watching Joe Montana in the eighth grade, and he's throwing touchdown passes. Next thing you know, he's in the huddle with you. So I had to kind of get over that. But then there was the other part where I've always considered myself a learner. I'm like, success leaves clues. What can I learn from him? And just the two years I played with him, I was just so impressed with his his professionalism, his pre- preparedness, his his execution, and then just his ability to stay calm in those critical moments of the game. And it really made a difference on my career as well as our teammates too. And I always tell everyone the thing that impressed me the most about him was he wasn't arrogant, he wasn't cocky. He came in and he just he studied like a rookie, he prepared like a veteran, and he led like a pro. Just a consummate leader. J.J. Burton, former University of Oregon wide receiver, nine seasons in the NFL with the Chiefs and the Falcons. Uh, you graduate from Lake Ridge, Lake Ridge High School in Lake Oswego. You had to weigh how much graduating your senior season? What, did, what playing weight were you in high school? I was 5'9", 133 pounds. 133 pounds. If I had to come to you and said, hey, you're going to play in the NFL, you're going to play a long time, J.J., I mean, you, would you have believed me? Oh, I would have thought you were crazy. I mean, my uncle, Sonny, who lives there in Portland, Oregon, that's what he said to me after a Lakers game. I said, Uncle, you're nuts. You know, but he, he made me promise him my first touchdown pass. I thought he was crazy. And sure enough, he got it. <laughs> he gets it. You go to college at Oregon, two sports star. You mentioned track and field, football. You were not offered a football scholarship out of the gate, but you stayed with it. What made you stay with football? I think, you know, for me, I've always been the underdog. And when someone tells me I can't do something, that's enough to motivate to pr- me to prove them wrong. 
And Oregon was the only D1 college track-wise because I had got a lot of offers because I went pretty far my senior year. But they were the only one tra- only track program. Did not think it was a crazy idea for me to try to walk on one year. And Coach Bill Dillinger and John Gillespie said, hey, run for us. And if you can convince Coach Brooks the second year, you got our blessing. And, and I just wanted an opportunity to prove Coach Brooks and the Ducks that I could play D1 football. You you work so hard. You get you know you go to the combine. The uh, Marty Schottenheimer likes what he sees. Takes you with the two hundred and sixty first pick. You have a knee injury that costs you a chance to be a you know an Olympic sprinter. Then you get cut and you get offers. You know you're on the practice squad in Dallas. In those moments, JJ, you know people don't talk about that. They want to talk about the touchdowns and everything that came after. But in those moments, those are there's victories in there somewhere. What made you stay with it? I think the main thing, John, was once I got a taste of it, because sitting on the Cleveland Browns injured reserve for a whole year, I got to evaluate the talent. I got to compare myself. So I reached the conclusion that I could play. Now it was just a matter of getting healthy because of the knee and then getting in the right situation. So that's why that third year when I chose – the Chiefs over several other teams, I felt that Marty, the Chiefs, they lacked speed. I felt this was the perfect fit for me because I knew the time was clicking that if I don't make it this year, then I'm probably not going to get another shot. Final game of the 91 season, eight catches, 188 yards, two touchdowns. Um, did your uncle get one of the game – did he get the touchdown ball? <laughs> no, he got the one in Seattle, the first touchdown in Seattle at the Kingdom. But that game was very special. That was the one that changed my career because that was my fourth year. I wasn't playing much. They had drafted a couple wide receivers, but I worked really hard every day. And the last game of the season, Marty said, we're going to give you a shot. And I think it was there kind of taking the time to really evaluate me. Are we going to keep this guy or not? And, man, I took advantage of it. And the very next week, Marty calls me in his office, and I think I'm in trouble. He says, how would you like to be a starter in the NFL? And I'm like, what? I was just trying to stay on the roster. But I started the remaining five years of my career after that game. Yeah, and you go 40 of the next 45 games with the Chiefs. All 22 games you start, you play with the Falcons before retiring. What made you know? Did you know the retirement was coming? Or do you wake up over several weeks and... You know, you make the decision. You know, or did you did you know that you were going to retire when you when you when you hung it up? I think that was a kind of a unique situation because John, I never expected to play in the NFL. That I wasn't the kid who dreamed about the NFL. And all of a sudden, you get there and you're like, okay, let me see if I can play four years. That's when you qualify for your pension. Then it was year after year, and then when I got to year nine, I had hurt my knee, and after I got healthy, I thought, you know what? You didn't expect to play. You got to play nine years in the NFL, and you're relatively healthy. Let's walk away from the game while we can. And I was more interested about life after football, making that transition. Yeah, I want to talk about that. I had you know one of the um, one of the, an athletic department sta- uh, staff member at Stanford saw my tweet about mm-hmm. having you on the show, and he said he's such a great story. He's done so much after football. Um, let's start with the family part. Three kids. Five adopted children, is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. In 2007, my wife and I, Raina, we, we took in our five nieces and nephews who were going to be placed in five separate foster homes. They lived in Tulsa, and 
you know, you just it's like football. You you call an audible, you make a decision, and we went for it. So we yeah, we raised them all. You did you did a good thing. You and your wife did a good thing, and you know that that's a family of eight. You know, yeah, there are challenges there. I I, I talked to uh, mm-hmm. Alex Molden, who's got uh, you know that many kids himself, but. Uh, that that's quite that's quite a commitment. How are how are all the kids doing? They're all doing well. You know, unfortunately, they're all out of the house now. <laughs> We're empty nesters, <laughs> but they're all kind of doing their own thing. And and uh, you know, my wife right now, we did our best to raise them and give them a, a good start. Um, we've got a couple of grandchildren now, so I'm grandpops, and my wife is Nana, so we're enjoying that phase of our life now. J.J. Burden with us, uh, former Kansas City Chief wide receiver. Um, after football, it's, you know, motivational speaking, you're a trainer, team-building seminars, youth group life skills development. Um, you worked with uh, health and wellness products. You know, did you know all along, like, hey, I, I better be ready after my career, or how do you hit the ground running? Yeah, it was more like I want to make sure I'm ready. I I always thought to myself, I don't want to be that story of the the athlete who, you know, when the career's over, they lose everything and they're lost. But I was always planning for life after the game, like in year four and year five and networking. And I remember when I retired because I was battling between, do I want to be an entrepreneur or do I want to be a coach? And I coached some in track in, in Lee Summit, Missouri. I coached at Lakers. I coached at Tiger. I ran a camp. And then I realized that if I wanted to coach, I probably wanted to coach at the NFL level. But I didn't like the, you know, the coach's schedule. So I said, we're not going that route. You know, and then I focused more on business. And then one day, John, someone told me, they said, you know what? You might be the lightest player in the last 30, 40 years who's played as long as you have. He said, I don't know if there's anyone who's played longer than you that weighed 157 pounds. And that day I thought, you know what, there's probably a lot of people out there that could learn from what I went through to reach the NFL level. And that's when I became a professional speaker and and just teaching the masses lessons that I learned and how it applies to them and helping them achieve their goals. And I think there, you know, there obviously there there are kids who grow up thinking I'm going to play in the NFL and they don't know less than 1% of college football players who are draft eligible get picked like it's it's a funnel that is like threading a needle and you you walk through that but are there life lessons that regular folks civilians can learn that you picked up in football and on your journey oh absolutely absolutely i think a couple of them i like to share is the importance of mindset because how you think what you think it matters in anything you do and in sports, you know how important it is. You've got to have your mind right, your mental skills right. And that affects people in just everyday life, whether it's a, a husband, a wife, uh, you know, a parent, whoever, going for a new jobs. So mindset is so important. And then I always like to share with people that no matter what the goal is, you've got to be willing to do the work. You've got to be willing to do the work. So many people want success, so many people want achievement, but not everybody's willing to do the work. And that's what I learned when I got to the NFL because everybody was a great athlete. You know, so it was me putting in that work from day to day, working on the fundamentals, working on the basics. That was that 1% difference that really made a difference. So, yeah, I try to relate what I learn and apply it to everyday life because I think it's a, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of crossover there. How can being an underdog help somebody? Oh, man. This is what I learned. 
being an underdog, it gives you a stealth opportunity to win because people don't see underdogs coming. And underdogs are usually willing to go the extra mile. They're willing to do something a little extra to prove someone that they're capable and they're able to do it. Case in point, my fourth year, when I, third year when I signed with the Chiefs, most wide receivers will come and they learn one position, the X or Z. I went in that third year, I learned X, H, Z, and Y because I thought the more chances I have to be on the field, the more opportunities I have for helping them see me, not as an underdog, but a top dog. But that's why I made the Chiefs because I was used well. I was everywhere, all over the field. And that's what underdogs do. They will go the extra mile to do what it takes to prove people wrong. Do you tell the coaches when you're going into that camp that, hey, I've I've learned every position, or when do they find out that you've done the work? Good question. Well, first, I, I ran a 4-3-3, so I had to catch their attention right away because I was the free agent kind of just there. And then after that, when you're in meetings and you're sitting there paying attention and you're in practice and, oh, shoot, H is hurt, who can come in for H? You raise your hand. I go in there. They're like, oh, he knows H. The Y gets hurt. Who can do what? I got it. Then I go in there, and all of a sudden, they're sitting there thinking, like, wait a minute, okay, so in the preseason game, if this guy gets hurt, we can just move J.J. there. That guy gets hurt, and that's how they were using me that preseason game. And all of a sudden, I went from being a little guy who's a liability, hey, this is an asset. We could use him. And that's really how I, that, I made that team that year. And that's why, you know, when I'm in the press box, J.J., people will say, Oh, that player was really lucky to get an opportunity. I go, nah. That 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 player put. There's a lot of work and a lot of sweat and a lot of, you know, late night film sessions and yeah. intention that goes behind it that nobody ever sees. Right, and not even and even before that, John, you have these guys. They create the opportunity. Because think about it. I go to Oregon. I went and bug Brooks. He didn't bug me. I begged him to let me walk on. So I created that opportunity once he opened the door. Then I had to show him I was worthy of being there. So I think it's a two-fold situation. you got to create the, create the opportunity, but when you get it, you got to maximize it, and you got to make sure you stand above everybody else. i got to ask you, you know, we were talking to Mike Walter earlier. You, you played against some fierce defensive backs. When you go 5'10", 157, and you got Kenny Easley or Ronnie Lott out there, those guys trash talk you, or, or uh, what kind of what kind of discussion was going on on the field? Oh, they were trash talking me so much because they're looking at me like little Riley's here. You ain't coming over here. Don't even try to come in here. But see, I already know they're going to do that. So any chance I got when we're running a ball, we're running a route or a running route, a running play to Christian Okoya, I would go out there and cut Ronnie Lott's legs. I'd take him <laughs> down low, and he hated me. <laughs> And then anytime he tried to bump me or press me, I run a four or three, so I know how to get by him. So I would frustrate these guys. So they would wait for their opportunities when they could catch me over the middle catching a ball. So, and I think they probably weren't used to. There's there's some ways you can use that size as an advantage, right? Like there's not a lot oh, yeah. for them to jam when you're running a four or three and you're you weigh one fifty seven. Yeah, see, that's what I learned because my first year in Cleveland, I remember I got jammed up by Hanford Dixon, and he threw me on the ground, and he's like, you know, four, six, four, seven. But I realized that I need to figure out how to use my speed as a competitive advantage to beat man-to-man, and, and I worked on that job so much. And that's one of the reasons why I played as long as I could, because I did, because they struggled with me and bumping around. They couldn't get their hands on me. 
you know. Now, when, when I played against Deion Sanders, that was something different because I could beat him on the line, but he would come and get me. I mean, he was the one that could run me down. His speed was pretty amazing. Yeah, I bet he trash talked too. Oh, yeah, he did. He trash talked me so much when we played him that I intentionally did not speak to him. In the fourth quarter, he begged me, dude, say something. And I just laughed at him because <laughs> I was like, I'm not saying anything to you because I know your strategy. You're not getting in my head. <laughs> I love that. J.J. Burden, all right, big Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, Mike Walter picked the Niners. Your prediction for the game? Chiefs 31, Niners 24. You, you having a party? Where are you watching the game? Well, we're going to stay home. My wife and I, are do, we're not Vegas fans. We think it's just going to be too crazy, so we're going to watch it at home with the family here in Phoenix. That's what Walter's doing, too. He said he didn't want it the scene. He's going to be at his daughter's house. He's going to watch it nice and quietly. So I love it. Thank you for joining us. We'll get you back on. And for people who are interested, jjburden.com, if you want to check out his uh, his book and his speaking and some videos. It's, uh, it's a really cool site. You can learn more about what J.J.'s doing after football. J.J. Burden, thank you. Thanks, John. Appreciate you. There he is. Really good stuff. Anna, what do you think of that? What do you think of that interview? I love his message. I love it. And it's so applicable. I mean, I can see why he's hired as a speaker to various audiences, corporate audiences, because it's applicable to all of us. It's like, do more to put yourself in a position at whatever entity that you want to be successful at. Like, make yourself indispensable by learning the spectrum of needs that that organization needs and suddenly you're you're moving up we i think we look sometimes at athletes professional athletes and we think things come easy for them and jj verdon is really fast right he's Mm -hmm. quick and he's fast he's got good feet and you think gosh you know he makes it look easy by the time he's in his eighth or ninth year in the league yeah but what you don't see um you know it would have been really easy for jj burden not to play football not to bug rich brooks at oregon and say i want to play and walk on and go through not playing early in his college career. would have been easy for him to give up early in his pro career and not play. There were multiple opportunities for J.J. to do the easy thing. He never did. He did, uh, you know, he did the hard thing and, and saw it through, and he, and he ended up in a better position because of it. That's super inspiring. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Great interviews today on the show. Jake Dickert, Washington State football coach, joined us in hour number one. He talked about the uh, changing landscape. Thought it was interesting what he talked about. You know, he recruited and signed 23 high school seniors in his recruiting class. He did not do what everybody else is doing, get into the portal and try to live in the portal. I think it's a definite strategy at Washington State. Listen to that interview with Jake Dickert, Washington State coach. Uh, It's part of the podcast. You should already be subscribed to the podcast if you listen to the show. You can grab that. Uh, in hour two, Mike Walter, three-time Super Bowl champion with the San Francisco 49ers, joined us. Fantastic memories of three different Super Bowl experiences uh, with uh, you know Bill Walsh in the first two as his head coach and George Seifert in his third Super Bowl. Mike Walter was fantastic. Grab that interview. Love the, uh, love the story. He intercepted a pass in the third Super Bowl, picking off John Elway. Got the game ball, and on the side of the ball, they said, Mike Walter, Super Bowl interception, two-yard interception. Because <laughs> he got the ball and was immediately tackled. Yeah, why not just put interception on the side of the ball? Two-yard interception. 
But Mike Walter, uh, former Oregon Duck, joined us, grabbed the podcast. And then J.J. Burden, you just heard him, was fantastic uh, talking about uh, his experience in sports. And uh, uh, ESPN, some news today. ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery announced plans to launch a sports streaming platform in the fall. They will include offerings from at least 15 networks, all four major professional sports leagues. It's a one-stop app to view a bunch of sports. Fans are excited about this, trying to figure out what it means. You know, everybody's trying to navigate, you know, a bunch of different services, subscribing to a bunch of different things. It appears as though ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers are going to try to put together a one-stop shop. Um, They'll share ownership, one-third each, in the joint venture. Uh, Name for the surface and pricing will be announced later. It's uh, innovative. It'll uh, include NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, WNBA, NASCAR, college sports, men's and women's NCAA tournament games, golf, tennis, and some World Cup matches. And I'm, I can't help but think about the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors who said, we're too early to streaming. Uh, this is so painful. Like, I'm happy for sports fans. Of course, it depends on how much it's going to cost to subscribe to this streaming service and if it's going to be at a price point that, you know, most of us can afford because that's my concern. Like, how much are they going to charge for this Disneyland of sports viewing? Um, but yeah, it wasn't too soon for the Pac-12, was it? It really wasn't too soon. They needed their eyes on the horizon and they had their eyes either behind them or staring at their feet. I think they were also a little bit scarred because keep in mind, the Pac-12 network was promised to them to deliver all of this exposure and all of this revenue. And they got conditioned over a decade to not believe in the promise of innovation, the promise of fortune. Like, they were almost conditioned to the point where, like, they needed to see concrete numbers, not buy on speculation, not buy, like, on the idea that people would subscribe. They needed to see a concrete number, and I think it really hurt them. No, I think just the opposite. I think they had plenty of evidence over a decade that the Pac-12 network, albeit a good product, wasn't working. And that it really limited the access for people to be able to view stuff. So I think they had all the evidence in front of them. Anybody that was on that board for more than a few years, I mean, there were a lot of newcomers. That may have been part of the problem. But they, I think they had all of the evidence in front of them that said, this didn't work. We should try something new and seize the future. I think that they, but they thought they were doing something new with the network. They were going to own and operate their own network. It was very bold. It didn't work out. And I think they were kind of regressing going, let's just go back to linear TV. No, but see, that's where, that's the difference between successful organizations and ones that fail is you have to be able to assess when something is going down and you are bleeding and you have to be able to pivot and and take another risk towards something that might be successful. And you get a lot of businesses that just get stuck in their ways and they're not able to kind of see that the industry has changed, the landscape has changed, the calculus has changed, and they just keep trying to do what they've done for years and years and years, and they're not really seeing that, like, you know, hey, uh, you know, hey, yo, open your eyes. Um, 
there's a new world out there, but you know, it looks like college sports and pro sports, ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery launched this platform. It's going to be similar to what Hulu did in 2008 when Hulu said, all right, we're going to bundle together all these things and make one product. They're now going to do it for sports. So it's going to be wildly successful. Yeah. If they price it right, they're going to have they're going to have massive. It's success. going to be like a food court with all the sports Correct. part of it. Right. You know, and who doesn't like to go to the food court? A buffet of sports. Get a Cinnabon. <laughs> get a Jamba. Because right now, as a as a viewing fan, how aggravating is it to try and figure out where something is airing and then to like. Toggle through all your different I did, last, I did the other subscription night. services to figure out where to see it. I do it every week. <laughs> this is my life. We're back tomorrow with another great show.